my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to History of Westeros podcast. We got a big one today before the dragons. It's a topic that allows us to use a lot of imagination, a lot of figuring out, a lot of triangulating. It's not an explicitly covered topic in any of the source material. It's something we just are able to guesstimate and, like I said, triangulate. We know a lot of these characters that we're going to talk about, we're aware of them in their later lives. So we have some inkling of what type of person they were, which allows us to discuss or guess or theorize what they were like when they were a little bit younger. And that's a lot of fun. We've got a lot of regions to cover, and we got to cover the reactions and state of affairs between the different kingdoms. So we'll see what transpires today with all that, with all this large amount of information. It's a little different kind of topic than we do than we normally do. There's not going to be pretty much any real world comparisons today. I don't really have much for that. There may be some things that come up. Maybe some of y'all will realize things that are good real-world comparisons. After all, Westeros is a bit of a parallel to real-world England, Aegon the Conqueror to William the Conqueror. So there's probably some things there. But we're not really focused on the conquest. We're focused on the time period five to 15 years before that. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew. Ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Sean, what do you have to drink today to go along with that? Do you have some sort of seven drinks mixed to one or... <laughs> One drink to that would be kind of sh- cool. Seven. I should ingredients. have. That'd be neat. Yeah. Although it makes as much sense to have eight yeah. ingredients. You argue for eight. Yeah, you're right. Or nine. Or nine. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Seven, yeah. eight, or nine. Uh, There's an argument for all three, <laughs> but not six. I, I was gonna no s- way. <laughs> yeah. Five is right. Five out. is right. <laughs> Perfect use of <laughs> money Python joke. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say today might be one where I prompt a lot more questions yeah. than answer questions. I, even some of this stuff that I like should know, I read it one time, but I haven't really learned it yet. I don't have context for everything. I might mix some stuff up. So maybe the more average viewer out there will appreciate my perspective here. Indeed, I may take some point. things for granted. I think that's a, a, a very valuable thing you bring to the table here for the show. And sometimes I assume people know things, but that's not always going to be true. So... I, uh, that helps. To answer your question, though, this is the Rainbow Naked Drink with the new Mango Mountain Dew. Mm, mango Dew. With the Watermelon Bang. Okay. That's only three things. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. See? Three is also right out. Go back into the kitchen and make another drink. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to our friend Nina. As always, very helpful with the notes. Check out goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Alley. The latest blog post is discussing 
trial by combat. And what happens? Where is the line? Right? You can, it's supposedly anyone who is knighted cannot be denied a trial by combat. But there's got to be some circumstances where they're just so obviously guilty that they don't get a trial by combat. Like you're the traitor on a losing side of a war. I mean, you just had a trial by combat. It was the war you just lost, right? <laughs> so there's got to be a line somewhere, but we don't really know what it is. So this is what she takes some guesses on, some educated guesses, and looks for examples throughout the books to make that case. It's a good question and a good answer. Also, I want to give some, a shout out to our friend and frequent guest, Stephen Atwell. I did some rereading of his blog, Race for the Iron Throne. WordPress.com, and he's also on Tumblr. And he had a series of posts back in 2016 that were also published on Tower of the Hand, where he does a full history of each region and his thoughts on this time period were helpful. Uh, of course, like us, there's a lot of guessing and imagining and triangulating. I'm going to use that word a lot today. I'm just decided I'm going to do a lot of triangulation today. I use that word in all its forms to try and figure things out. And so his, his thoughts were really, really valuable. Uh, he's he's a, got a lot of uh, expertise in this type of thinking. So, Sean, you had a note here, a Comic-Con going on in Denver right now? Yeah, I think they changed the name to the Denver Fan Expo. Oh. I don't know if that has to do with, I don't know if Comic-Con's in like an actual organization or some trademark, or maybe they just don't want to be pigeonholed to comic stuff because there's all kinds of Star Trek, Mandalorian, whatever else. But uh, yeah. anyway... There was an artist named Mog Park from Game of Thrones that was there. And uh, she had a lot of really good stories and insights mm. to, to the production. And she's a, a big fan of the books and everything. And uh, afterwards, Reed and I like went and talked to her and exchanged some information and stuff. But you should check out some of her art online. She was really passionate about the show. Had a lot of cool, fun, interesting stories about the show oh, and her life. And I went one little anecdote. They kept having her draw boats, which she, she likes to draw cats. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> cat but they kept wanting her to draw boats, so she got really good at drawing boats. And a lot of the work was remote. And so her name, Mog, isn't very standard. And so she got to be known as the boat guy. She's not even a guy. You know I mean? <laughs> There's an example of the types of stories and the insights that she had from the whole remote boat. adventure of it. But yeah. Yeah. And I had to happen to notice that name on the list of people that will be at San Diego Comic-Con. So I'll have a chance to chat with her in person. Her presentation was very similar to David Peterson's at Ice and PyroCon. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. I'm glad you got to do that. Let's get to it. Uh, welcome the questions if you have any, whether they're live or sent in advance. Uh, quite a few people had some comments this week's episode, so we'll get to those throughout. And a few are re responses to previous episodes, which we're happy to delve into at the middle of the episodes, usually when we do that. Today will be about the same. Our trivia question to start off, you most surely recall in some form or fashion, the anecdote of the Lord given charge of Dorne after the young dragon's conquest. He pulled, this Lord pulled a sash to summon a bedmate and instead unleashed 100 red scorpions on himself. And that was the last thing he did other than scream and thrash and try to get away. So if you can name this person, half credit for naming their house, full credit for getting their whole name. I'll give you, it's not a clue, but some additional context. The character's house is named in A Song of Ice and Fire. 
but not their first name. Their first name is given in the world of Lights of Fire. That's the first time we got the full identity of this character. So it's, it's an appropriate trivia question for this since it's the World of Ice and Fire gave us the distinguisher there. I can also tell you that it's depicted on My- Michael Clarfeld's uh, Doran map. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right on. I see it right here. So I'm cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So what we're doing is arbitrarily deciding to do five to 15 years before the conquest. I know that time frame is a bit vague, but so is our information. So it's appropriate. It's not, like I said at the beginning, it's not an explicitly covered timeline. We're working on this ourselves. We think it's an interesting timeline. We think it's a really interesting spot right before things changed for forever. But certainly things could change back in some way, but it was a, a permanent, semi-permanent shift in Westeros. And it's the state we find in the Seven Kingdoms. And now it was an important shift, a big milestone. Our voters on Patreon also thought it would be interesting. That's why it was voted. It really, we, we could have called it something else like the last kings or the last kingdoms or something, the, the tail end of the century of blood. So the end of the century of blood, some sort of title to reference that. So let's do a little quick figuring out to get ourselves situated on where, we, where this timeline falls. Before we do that, yeah, yeah I just uh, also, I don't know, just thinking about the, the setup for this idea. Mm-hmm. I like the idea, like Martin does it in his world and it's, kind of part of the real world, but you see in a lot of literature, I've been thinking about a lot from Better Call Saul too, that there are certain things that are sort of inevitable. Mm. Once you have certain things in motion, certain character types in play, things are going to, for the most part, in a big picture way, go a certain direction. Like it was kind of inevitable that eventually Europeans were going to come settle the Americas. Okay, yeah. And once that happened, probably they're going to be decimating the native population. Just, yeah. It's slave trade, disease, so many things. Even if Christopher Columbus didn't do it, it was still going to happen, right? Yeah. Same thing. Probably Ned eventually was going to be Hannah the King. Once Robert became king, at some point, he's going to look to Ned to help him. Does that make sense? Like if yeah. Robert and Aaron hadn't been... John Aaron was old enough, later he's, anyway. he's, there's no way he's going to live to 100 you know, or whatever. I mean, that's it's possible. So, and, and, you know, you, yeah. Right. You, you could go on and on. And maybe that doesn't happen. But you can see what I mean about certain things or like... Joffrey was still going to be a little brat if that little confrontation with Micah and Arya didn't happen. Some other thing was going to happen. Yeah. Things were going to go bad once Ned does go to King Landing. So, um, so same thing here. In this world that Martin has set up, there's sort of this momentum of the state of things in the Seven Kingdoms. But every now and then you have these weird, unpredictable disruptions to what is naturally occurring. Like the doom? Like... A volcano yeah, going yeah, off, right? Yeah. Someone maybe <laughs> randomly dying or being injured in some way. Like, I think I made that point one time about Grant Stark. Probably was eventually going to fall off those walls and hurt himself anyway. But, you know, maybe but it wasn't that like that it inevitable that he would catch Jamie and Cersei, right? That wasn't. Inevitable. Right, that yeah. part wasn't, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Although I, someone else I, might I have just, caught them inevitably. That maybe you could say yes, is inevitable. Yes, yeah. But I'm I, off in fact, I'm getting you off track here, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Someone probably had already caught them and been executed for yeah, it. Yeah, right? that's entirely <laughs> possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but eventually someone will be caught that they can't handle and they happen to be brand. Yeah, but it's not like a serving anyway, person. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, I just think that's a neat context to think about the state of Westeros before the Targaryens showed up is what course it seemed to be on. Well, would you say, then, let me ask you a question here on that line. Would you say that it was inevitable that the Dragon Lords would conquer Westeros or at least expand from Dragonstone, maybe not take the whole thing. But, I mean, that's such a huge amount of power that enables you to conquer. Isn't it just inevitable that someone with the personality is going to be a dragon lord and be like, all right, here we go. 
I feel like that you know, is kind of what happened. Aegon was that I, person, but maybe not. I don't know. I, I I could see that argument. I wouldn't argue too hard against it, but it's my not my default thought okay. because it seems like they would have already done it. The Targaryens have been in power for hundreds of years and haven't even spread out that much on their own continent, yep. much less go to another continent. So maybe it's not crazy to think that some independent mind in person with a dragon or his family and their dragons might come to Westeros, but I don't know if that would have been inevitable, how long they would have lasted, especially if Westeros had a little longer to progress on the course it was on, maybe even formed an alliance with them or had stronger forces to fight them. Other elements of magic that may have risen or fallen. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The magical uh, thing is a, is a big wild card. Yeah. yeah. Even if it was inevitable, the fact that it happened at this moment and not another one, it's still interesting to yeah. think about how that interaction changes the course of things. Or it doesn't. Some things might still keep moving the way they were going to go. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons to, it maybe isn't the full picture and maybe isn't as big a factor as I want it to be or think it is, is the Century of Blood. Aegon's conquest somewhat coincided with the end of the Century of Blood. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't that like he saw the Century of Blood and he's like, okay, now I can conquer. He specifically had a major role in ending the Century of Blood. He and Argilac the Arrogant, two of our major characters today, actually fought against Volantis when their ambitions were imperial. And once Volantis was defeated, that pretty much wound down the Century of Blood. No one, none of the pow- great powers that emerged from the Century of Blood were trying to conquer each other anymore, at least not at that point. The, the, of course, <laughs> there more wars will come later. And it's sort of written that now that the East was settled, Aegon turned his attention west. And I, I wonder if that's not what the other Targaryens were doing as well. They were more like, okay, we've got to see how things were working out over here. Maybe we got to get involved. Or maybe the opportunity wasn't there. You know, one thing we'll get into, as you'll see here, when Aegon conquered Westeros, it was somewhat ripe for conquest. And maybe that's the opportunity it wasn't there. And maybe that's part of what was inevitable. Inevitably, there would be a state in which it was weak enough for someone to do this if they had the right. Maybe it wasn't inevitable, though, because Aegon had Balerion, which is the biggest dragon we've ever seen by a mile. And when, when we eventually cover the conquest, you'll see that Balerion was pretty instrumental in the whole thing. Without a gigantic, particularly gigantic dragon, it may not have been possible. Maybe it still would have been. Maybe he would have conquered half of Westeros with a smaller dragon. Anyway, these are the kind of things we get to play with today. It's a lot of fun. Lots of imagining, lots of using logic and reason and, and, and trying to understand these, these characters and the way they've behaved in other scenarios to try to maybe guess at what they would do in these less certain times. And so there was less of a direct effect of the doom on Westeros as there had been in Essos. It still hadn't been that long ago in historical memory. One of the characters we're going to talk about today or as part of this great topic, the Yellow Toad of Dorne, Princess Maria. She was only about 20 years, or she was born when the Doom had only been 20 years or so before. (laughs) And she's still in power at this point. So her mom could have told her, her mom and dad lived to the Doom, could have told her about it. So that's just still how recent it was. And you have a lot of these characters that are in charge at this time in Westeros, Argilac pretty much an older guy. Lauren Lannister, probably, maybe not, we're not sure about his age, but Myrne Gardner, the last gardener, his grandsons were squiring for him in his last battle. So he was up there in age. He may not have been old, old, but wasn't a young man. If you have, if you have grandsons, you're not young. And 
So there's a lot of like older rulers, in some cases middle-aged or in one or two cases younger. And that means that these rulers had seen a lot and they had direct connections to people who were alive during the doom and during all this great chaotic time period. So they, they've seen some stuff. <laughs> Essos was still discovering its new identity in a world without the Dragon Lords, while Westeros was about to ironically become the only place ruled by Dragon Lords. But that hadn't happened yet. Things could still change quickly. People were seeing that. Like you said, Sean, the Doom's a great example of something that probably nobody predicted in the in-world. 20 years prior to the era we're zooming in on, so roughly 30 to 35 years before the conquest, the city of Gagasos, which emerged as a great power after the doom, it was considered the 10th free city, saw all this, it got wealthy and powerful, it had sorcery and blood magic, and it was in a pretty strong position. It was erased rapidly when it was struck by the Red Death. And Good example. Something you can't really predict that happening. Sure, diseases are inevitable, but it isn't inevitable if the entire population is going to be wiped out by a disease. That's not inevitable. So when and where it happens, you can't necessarily predict, but that it will happen somewhere. Yeah. And that's why I think a volcano or disease or something is a fair storytelling device for George to use or any writer. Does that make sense? I think it is okay for random events to occur. And it's especially good for those to set up storylines like yeah, eggs being bored, Brandon Stark falling, things like that initiate the storylines. But I don't think you want to resolve the storyline. If you set up all these characters and dilemmas and political intrigue, and then it ends because the volcano goes off and everyone dies. Well, that's not... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe a little cheap. Like, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to blow it all up. <laughs> so, yeah. Although, as a writer. You know? I, would, I would also note, Sean, that the volcano blowing up isn't exactly the most random thing going by many theories. That's In this case, it wasn't like a random occurrence. Right. I, I, I was trying to clarify, too, that even something like disease might be more predictable in one spot than another if it's a denser population. Well, or port city where there's one, a lot of traffic. Yeah. Where tra- et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, well, what I'm saying, I mean, in this case, is there's this, this is a good chance the Doom was engineered. Still, it would look random to anyone who wasn't yeah. on the outside. But if it. you were watching, yeah. a, say, a show of the Doom of Valyria that culminated in everyone dying, it would, it would be the culmination of like the faceless men working yeah. towards something. It wouldn't just be like, oh, Volcanoes went off everywhere. Yeah, died. you wouldn't be surprised. You're like, oh my God, the doom happened in a show about the doom. Like, yeah. What the hell is going on here? You, you, if Martin <laughs> was writing that, he would probably put in all kinds of foreshadowing of like overmining that could interfere with yeah. plate tectonics yeah. or yeah. something yeah. like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, all the things that like built it up nicely. Yeah. And I mean that in both ways, like the pressure and the story. <laughs> <laughs> there were about seven kingdoms at this time. The, the kingdom, the Dragonstone wasn't a kingdom. The Targaryens didn't call themselves kings. It was Blackwater Bay. It was a region. They may have been the, the biggest power in that small region, but they weren't kings yet. I think you'd have to be a little pretentious to call that a kingdom also. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, what did uh, Salador San call the Narrow Sea? He's like, I'm Admiral of the Narrow Sea. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, seven kingdoms, because the Riverlands were currently in possession of the Iron Islands. So they weren't independent at this point. And there weren't any crown lands yet. And there were probably a few other regions here and there that weren't fully claimed by one of the big seven. A couple of islands here and there, maybe some corners of kingdoms here and there that were claimed but not really ruled by there. Like Duskendale is a good example. Duskendale and, and Stokeworth and, and Rosby, all these areas that are now part of the crown lands were sort of controlled by Heron the Black. But 
they weren't like fully under his control. He claimed them and they didn't want to make him angry because he was really powerful, but he was focused on building Hall at this point. So they were kind of, it was in this sort of in-between state. There's no King's Road, of course. No King's Landing, even more importantly. Obviously, Aegon built that. So that's a huge power that's not there. <laughs> a huge population center that just doesn't exist at this point, even though it's about to. And there's possibly more cell swords in Westeros at this point than perhaps ever, or at least in a long time. Because as we discussed during the Century of Blood, there was a big uptick in the formation of sellsword companies. All that chaos and war meant there were more people for hire, soldiers with no nation, with needing to make a living. And then as we're told, in the world of Ice and Fire and elsewhere, once the war started to die down a bit, you had cells, powerful sellsword captains that were engineering wars to drum up business for themselves. And that's, that's obviously a bad thing for everyone, except those few people profiting from it. And that may have meant that some of these free companies were hired in Westeros. Houses with extra cash that were low on manpower now had an additional option. So I feel like this may have been an even more tumultuous time thanks to the century of blood that maybe we don't hear about it, but there's just more fighting men out in the world and some Westerosi probably brought some of them over. Does that sound logical to you, Sean? I can imagine all sorts of strife and turmoil that was going on that just got overshadowed when dragons take over, when yeah. a new ruler comes. A lot of things that might have been like adventurous or ambitions of someone's whole life just become meaningless relative to the new things that happen. Yeah, that's a good point. So for the most part, what we're going to do is we're going to look at who was in charge during the conquest and assume that for the most part, especially if they're older, that that's who was in charge five to 15 years before as well. There's going to be some exceptions to that, and we'll deal with those individually. But let's have our first quote of the day. This is from the World of Ice and Fire. It gives a nice overview of the state of things just before the conquest. This is maybe it's pretty close to the time frame we're looking at, maybe two or three years past, but it's a, it's a general overview. It works quite well. The Westeros of Aegon's youth was divided into seven quarrelsome kingdoms, and there was hardly a time two or three of these kingdoms were not at war with one another. The vast, cold, stony north was ruled by the Starks of Winterfield, and the deserts of Dorne, the Martell princes held sway. The gold-rich Westerlands were ruled by the Lannisters of Casterly Rock, the Fertile Reach by the Gardeners of High Garden, the Vale, Fingers, and the Mountains of the Moon belonged to House Arryn. But the most belligerent kings of Aegon's time were the two whose realms lay closest to Dragonstone, Heron the Black and Argilac the Arrogant. So yeah, those two were both around for quite a while. Argilac the Arrogant is described as having gone white in his, old, in his age. White is usually 60 or more, maybe 55 or more. And George usually describes like going gray as like late 30s, early 40s. It's a little bit, happens a little earlier for Westerosi because of stress and nutrition. But roughly speaking, you go gray in your late 40s and early 50s, and then you go white in your 60s and 70s. That's generally how George writes it. So Argilac is probably in the 60s or 70s by this point. Heron the Black, it took 40 years to build Hall, And he was old and gray when he go, walks out on the battlements to talk to Aegon. So he's probably in his like late 50s or something like that. Obviously, probably didn't start building the castle when he was 15. And if it took almost 40 years, then that gives you, it gives us a pretty solid time frame. I already mentioned Princess Mary, the yellow toad of Dorne, who is roughly 65 years old at this time and had been ruling Dorne for about 45 years. So she, longest temp tenured ruler at this point, 
And she's no fool. You don't, you don't stay in power that long without learning a few things. We're not as sure about Lauren and Mern, like I said, and, and the Aaron situation is interesting. We'll get to that. Here's a note from Nina about Stephen Atwell, who uses the term the great game to describe the pre-conquest scramble for territory and control among the various Westerosi great powers. Yeah, the great game, like it is like the Game of Thrones. And the way the great game, it's, it's a great description because if you've ever played like a war board game, one thing that happens is there's like everyone sort of sits back and, and entrenches themselves and you wait for someone to make a mistake. And if someone starts to get more powerful, that's when everybody gangs up on that person to keep them from getting the upper advantage, right? And then it returns to its state of parody where everyone's kind of got their own corner and it's hard to reach out and expand because everyone's looking out for you to expand. And if you do that, that's, that's the time to, to knock you back down. And that is what Westeros had done for some four to 5,000 years of this. And maybe that's, as, a, as an aside, this is why some people compellingly argue that Westeros history is not as long as it should be, like, or is too long. Like the, the, the maesters that say, maybe this is, history is only about 2,000 years and not four to 5,000 years. They have a point maybe because this is so long for this state to have endured. But that aside, whether it's endured for four or 5,000 years or 2,000 years or even only a few hundred years, this is the state of affairs. The great game, it's a very good description of that because of the board game metaphor and the Game of Thrones metaphor. No one could win. No one could ever get too much of an upper hand for very long. Although at this point, arguably, Heron the Black, the, the Whore dynasty, had started to gain that sort of advantage. There's also an argument that they were absolutely inevitably, use that word again, going to screw it up because they ruled through extreme brutality and that system can never hold forever. Uh, that's the system that's definitely going to fall apart at some point. When you rule, when you're, when you're making everyone hate you, every king, make, like three kings, four kings in a row, makes your, all your subjects hate you, that's just not going to last. <laughs> and indeed it didn't. <laughs> Uh, as Aegon took advantage of that, one of many things he one of many things he capitalized on was like, hmm, everybody hates this guy. Yeah, I could gain maybe get some support by going after him. Pretty smooth to go instead of going for the the weakest link, he went for the strongest link to both show his power and to win some acclaim for knocking off the big bully. Right? It's like a two things. He's like, look how strong I am! I beat the big guy without getting any help first, and. Everybody's like, thank you. <laughs> we hated that guy. <laughs> but that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. It's important context, but that comes, that's during the conquest. So let's back it up a little bit and talk about what was happening in Blackwater Bay around this time. Quote, Its location athwart the gullet gave its lords a stranglehold on Blackwater Bay and enabled both the Targaryens and their close allies, the Valarians of Driftmark, a lesser house of Valyrian descent, to fill their coffers off the passing trade. Valyrian ships, along with those of another allied Valyrian house, the Celtigars of Claw Isle, dominated the middle reaches of the Narrow Sea, whilst the Targaryens ruled the skies with their dragons. So it, meaning Dragonstone, if it wasn't clear, its, it's position in the Narrow Sea or in the Blackwater Bay gave it that. The last known ruler of Dragonstone was Lord Arian Targaryen, and before him was Lord Damien Targaryen. Arian was the son of Damien, and Damien was a third son. Damien's brothers didn't have kids, so there's no possible living uncle Targaryens at this point. But there could have maybe been an aunt or a cousin. 
Nina says, I do wonder, it's a small-scale dynastic collapse of the Targaryens prior to the conquest. Aenar's senior great-grandson, Magon, doesn't seem to have married or have children. And Aegon the Conqueror's two senior great-uncles didn't either, like I said. Damien and Arian both had a single son, perhaps, or at least only one that lived to adulthood, which did put them maybe on a little perilous footing as far as the, the dynasty just suddenly dying out because of an accident or something like that. Was this a consideration for them? Were they worried that their dynasty was imperiled? Was that giving them purpose or purposelessness given the, the danger they were in? And what are they doing? Like, their homeland was destroyed by the doom? They've been sitting on Dragonstone for a while here. Like, this is a house that's kind of like, what's their purpose in the world at this point? Their people are extinguished for the most part. Like, what would that do to you? You're really rich. It's not like they're sad about they're unable to have the luxuries they want. I mean, that's kind of a narrow view to think that, oh, they've got money, so they must be happy. Of course not. But yeah, this was just a weird thing. Like, your entire culture was wiped out. It's been a while, but still, it's hard to frame that. Don't you think, Sean? Like, it's difficult to imagine what that would be like. Yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot, and and I wish I knew more details of the scenario. Like, you... They're they're rich, but I don't know what what obligations do they have. Yeah, how much does it take to feed the dragons? How many people live on Dragonstone? Are they taking care of those people? Like I don't know how much there are they generating new wealth. They're like I'm I'm making numbers up. Let's say they had a million gold. Yeah, and now they're down to five hundred thousand gold, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, I don't know. In twenty more years, we're going to be out of money. Like we're not <laughs> generating new money. I also, this adds to my thought that it might not have been inevitable for dragon riders to take over because they're right there for a hundred years and they didn't do it. I mean, eventually they did do it, but I can see, I don't know, it doesn't seem like that they weren't clearly ambitious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they weren't clearly ambitious because we, we, there was not even an attempt that we know of. It wasn't like this was the second conquest. The first one failed. No, as far as we know, they were content to just collect, to dominate Blackwater Bay, make a lot of money that way. And, that was enough. It might even be why yeah. part of why they finally did. They're like, we can't last like this forever. We have to do something. Else. Yeah. And so may it, maybe Aegon was just the first really ambitious guy that came along. Yeah. Or maybe they were so frustrated with what Heron was doing. They feel like they had to stand up for what's right. Might as well have it. I'm not sure. But, it could be, uh, could be a lot of those factors too. Yeah. We don't have to just yeah. settle on one. Another little thought I had was something else that might have made it more of an inevitable Someone from Westeros might have eventually gone over and tried to attack Essos or the Valerians, yeah. right? Yeah. Which we saw <laughs> their swift and complete retribution if that happens. Yeah. And so if Heron or some similar character had, I know. <laughs> 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 the mother of Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys was Lady Valena Valarian. She... We not only do we not know when Arian died, their father, but we don't know what Lady Valena, what her deal was. She quite possibly was still alive during the conquest. Now, the father had to have died because Aegon became lord. That much we know for sure. Arian had to have died at some point, but a lot depends on when he died. For example, Aegon was 27 when the conquest began. Visenya was about two years older than him. The minute Aegon was born it was determined that he would marry Visenya. That was obvious. Like when Visenya was born, it wasn't sure who she would marry. But the second she had a younger brother within two years of her, that's pretty much settled. That's what Targaryens do, right? But if Aegon had come along 10 years later, they, they probably wouldn't have married. He might have married, automatically married Rhaenys instead of ch- chosen to marry Rhaenys later. But that would have also depended on when she was born. So that part was basically decided the second he was born. 
But what we didn't know, what's, what's not necessarily clear as an important data point here, is that they were dragon lords. All three, it says that all three, Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys, were dragon riders before they were married. We also can be pretty sure Aegon didn't marry Rhaenys until after he became lord. He took us an extra wife once he had the power to do that. I don't think his father would have allowed that. It was unusual. Sounds like something he did after he took full control. He also didn't have the painted table made until he was lord. It's his lord Aegon had ordered the construction of the painted table. So there's this narrow range potentially when maybe Arian was alive at this reign during 15 years out. Maybe he was dead by five years out. Somewhere in between, he passed. It's kind of my guess there. That's kind of roughly what I'm thinking. Was his dragon alive? That's the question. If his dragon was alive, it would have passed because if they're all dragon riders before they were married, that implies that's pretty relatively young because we know Visenya and Aegon probably got married relatively young-ish because it was, an, they, it was a foregone conclusion the minute he was born. No reason to wait, right? It wasn't, they weren't rushing, but it's different from everybody else, right? We, normally, we talk about this in other scenarios where these teenage marriages amongst the nobility are not as common when things aren't, in, aren't tumultuous. Usually you wait, wait longer. But when you're shoring up alliances and to, to have marriage alliances so soldiers can fight on the same side, that has to happen quickly. It has, you can't wait on that. You have to have the marriage now. You can't wait on that. Otherwise, people can back out. So most people, even arranged marriages, you can wait on. There's no urgency to it. But in this case... Most people don't know who they're marrying the minute they're born. <laughs> it's just like, in this case, it's a why wait situation rather than a why rush it situation. Either way, the point is, if they all had dragons before they were married, that means Arian had a different dragon because he can't have had Valerian if Aegon was already riding Valerian. He couldn't have had Vagar if Visenya was already riding Vagar. Ditto Meraxes, right? So my guess is he had either, it was a Viserys situation, Viserys I, who we're going to see a lot of on House of the Dragon, when he was the last rider of Balerion, and when Balerion died, he was just like, eh, I don't need another dragon. He just went dragonless for the next like 37 years of his life or 39 years of his life. He's like, eh, I'm king. I don't need a dragon. Screw it. To kind of get, maybe that's what happened with Arian. Arian's dragon passed because we know four or so dragons that came over after the doom died in this era and they didn't die from battle as far as we know, at least not fighting other dragons. And yeah, any reaction to this stuff, Sean? I've been going off for a minute here. I think there is room for weird exceptions to what you're saying, but you're definitely naming the most likely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're right. What, what are some possibilities that stand out to you that you think are interesting? or um... Like maybe someone had a dragon, then the dragon died quickly for some random yeah. reason. It could have been an know. older dragon, yeah. Yeah, like maybe Aegon had a dragon that that died and then got another dragon or then got Balerion, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because if he died, if his dragon died when he was young, he would want another one. But if you're old and your dragon dies, you might be like, eh, I don't need to go. I don't need a dragon. I'm already old. <laughs> I think what you're saying is all really good for making predictions. Yeah. But if it turns out to be some different thing, there are ways we can yeah, make Yeah, none of, of these too. predictions should be seen as like super likely. Maybe they're just arguably the most likely, but even that yeah. is not certain. It's just a good, it's a good, it's a good way to frame it and to kind of, it's a starting point. I would even say there's super likely. I would give them yeah. like well over 50%. At least a lot of these things. Maybe not, maybe not if we hone in on specifics, but yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. So we also know that they traveled around a bit. Like Visenya and Aegon went to, may have gone to Lannisport. They definitely went to the Citadel. And we hear that Aegon hawked, on, went hawking on the Arbor. I mean, smart move by the Arbor to befriend 
Aegon, the, the future conqueror. And it seems like they had positive relations going forward, the Arbor and, and the conqueror. Nina also writes, given that Gaiman the Glorious, that's one of the ancestors, I think that was the grandfather of Damien, who was Arian's father. So he had multiple daughters, one of whom married a petty lord who attempted to claim the throne at the Great Council of 101, which we'll see in House of the Dragon. We may even see this moment. I wonder whether there will be any other Targaryen daughters or their other non-Targaryen descendants hanging around Dragonstone in this era. So that's a great idea from Nina here that because we have this example of Game and the Glories having extra daughters, there could be other Targaryen-blooded cousins or people who are a little more distant, but still definitely of the family. So yeah, the line from Fire and Blood is all three siblings had showed themselves to be dragon lords before they wed. Valerian is already like 100 years old at this point. This is an important thing to note. Valerian was young when they came to Dragonstone, but of course this Dragonstone period is almost 100 years long before the conquest. Vagar was born in the year 52. So around this era, about 40. So full grown, but not as monstrous as she would become. Meraxes was probably the youngest. That's not entirely clear. Definitely younger than Balerion. But Meraxes ended up just huge for some reason. Like maybe even bigger than, than Vagar got. Maybe even bigger than, not bigger than, than Balerion, I don't think. But Tyrion sees the skull of Meraxes really early in Game of Thrones and is like, that's even bigger. And it's like, really? Meraxes is bigger? Okay. Hmm. <laughs> maybe he got his skulls mixed up. But anyway... That's not an important maybe, question for us to solve, right? Maybe now. you just had a big head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. It was just an unusually large head for a dragon. <laughs> had a small body, roll <laughs> like a giraffe. Tyrannosaurus Rex dragon. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a house called. Uh, well, at this point, they weren't a house, but they will soon become a house. It's House Coharis. They were the first lords of Harrenhal, and that, of course, is a slightly semantic trick. There, the first. Lord of Harrenhal. The first king of Harrenhal was Aaron the Black. But after he was defeated, the first person given the castle was this guy, Sir Quentin Coheris, who was the master at arms on Dragonstone. That's not a position for a young man, generally. So we can be pretty sure this guy was the one who taught both Aegon and Visenya. She knew how to fight, probably Rhaenys as well. I mean, she may not have been a big swordswoman, but she definitely went into battle. So she probably had at least some training with a sword. And I mean, and Visenya wielded Dark Sister, so that, there's no question. She, she, she wielded the sword plenty of times. And Oris Baratheon, supposedly Aegon's half-brother, which would also mean he's Visenya and Rhaenys' half-brother, would have also been trained at arms by this Sir Quentin Coheris guy. He must have done a good job and been well-regarded to be given Hall, right? That seems <laughs> a pretty big reward. He wasn't a Targaryen, though, right? He was Valyrian, but not know. Targaryen. Yeah. He was Valyrian, yeah. okay. Yeah, okay. so he was probably silver-haired. Are there any remnants of that house? No. They screwed it up pretty bad. And got, they, they, the, how, Quentin's grandson was a terrible, terrible guy who got himself killed by doing terrible, terrible things. He'll, he'll, we'll discuss him later, but he was awful. <laughs> and made sure that he had no descendants through his awfulness. Ori's Baratheon... Important character, the, the the founder or subsumer of House Durandon that turned it into House Baratheon, but kept most of its symbolism in place, kept the same sigil and married the last princess of, of Durandon. So he even kind of looked like them. So it really, it really was a smooth transition in a lot of ways from the outside. 
So there's a quote here. Even before the conquest, he served as Aegon's champion and sworn shield and is, was considered his childhood friend, which implies they were close age. Is that, does, that, does that imply to you, Ashea? What do you yeah. think? Is that just childhood friend imply near the same age? Is that yes. how you read that? Yes, that does. I mean, I mean, and if it's true that they're related, more yeah. than childhood friends, it also implies that. Yeah, that's true. There's a chance they weren't related, but I, I, it's such a vague notion that it's never proven that he was actually his half-brother, but I think he was. But what I don't know is whether Oris was older or younger than Aegon. It's probably not important, but I kind of think he was, my guess is he was slightly older. I would have, I guess I would have said I thought slightly younger. But yeah. I don't know. If it wasn't for Visenya existing, I might have guessed younger. Mm. But okay, but yeah, as a half brother, I mean? yeah, I mean, you know, it makes some sense. But there's also no reason why a lord mm. can't have a bastard before with his yeah. lover before his wife, especially if his arranged marriage wife was a lot younger than him and he was had a lover before that. But anyway, pure, pure guesswork. But if we're keeping them close in age, there's there's fewer options as far as that goes. He would later reward, quote, his oldest supporters with high offices on his small council, like master ships and commander, Kingsguard and all that. So we can kind of assume that some of these next group of figures were around in this era and prominent because for them to have been oldest supporters, well, they were probably around five years before, if not 10 or 15 years before. Lord Damon Valarian was the first master of ships. His grandson was named Damon. And was also master of ships to King Magor and then King Jaehaerys. So there's a history of Daemon Velaryons being master of ships. His granddaughter Alyssa married Aenys I. So he was great-grandfather to Jaehaerys and Alysanne, and that in turn makes him great-great-great-grandfather to Daemon Targaryen, the rogue prince, which in turn makes him great-great-great-great-great-grandfather to Daemon Blackfire. We've got to keep all our Daemon connections straight here. There's also a Sir Corlys Velaryon, not to be confused with the Sea Snake. The first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard is this guy, Sir Corlys Velaryon. The Kingsguard was formed in the year 10 AC, so 10 years after the conquest. Now, this guy had to be alive 5 to 15 years before the conquest if he's the first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard in 10 AC. And I don't think five years before the conquest, he would have only been 15 (laughs) otherwise if he was born then. So... 15 years before the conquest, we're still talking about only 25-year-old man. So I'm guessing he was even older than that to be a Lord Commander, to be the first Lord Commander. He wasn't the firstborn of Damon. So this is Damon's second or third son. We're not sure which, which could even be fourth son, but the firstborn was Athan Velaryon, and Corlys was farther down the line. There was also a Lord Crispian Celtigar, Crispian. He was the first master of coin. And he died between 1 and 9 AC. So it sounds like it could have been an accident, but again, oldest supporter. So he was probably Lord of Claw Isle for a good length of time. Aegon probably worked with him, stuff like that. The first Master of Laws was Tristan Massey. He was sworn to House Durandon pre-conquest, but had closer ties to Dragonstone. (laughs) So that's interesting. Like basically Aegon was sort of just pulled him over. I guess his, his ancestors did as well. You have your, va- your vassal or your uh, overlord is the storm's end, but you're, you'd rather be a vassal of Dragonstone. You're like, yeah, I like these guys better. And Nina writes, this is a sign of the declining power of the Storm Kings that this vassal of theirs was just 
hanging out more with the Targaryens and he couldn't really do much about it. So that's uh, that's kind of not- noteworthy there. We also have Lord Bar Emmon of Sharp Point, who was also on Aegon's team, and that's part of the Massey's Hook region there. Here is another quote about another famous part of the what's now the Crown Lands. At that time, Duskendale was the principal Westerosi port on the Narrow Sea and had grown fat and wealthy from the trade that passed through its harbor. It's a good example of a semi-independent but not kingly spot. They had been kings back in the Age of Heroes, but had been overwhelmed by the Andals while not being erased like so many other houses were just sort of taken over rather than completely wiped out. We also have Lord Mooton of Maidenpool nearby, possibly the older brother of the Lord John who will eventually submit to Aegon because Lord John is going to submit to Aegon after his brother is killed in battle by Aegon. So this is probably that guy that gets killed. (laughs) But here's what we had in place of King's Landing. This is an interesting quote to describe what was going on in that general region in place of what's now a bustling, heavy populated city. In the days of the Hundred Kingdoms, many petty kings had claimed dominion over the river mouth, amongst them the Darkland kings of Duskendale, the Masseys of Stonedance, and the river kings of old, be they muds, fishers, brackens, blackwoods, or hooks. Towers and forts had crowned the three hills at various times, only to be thrown down in one war or another. Now, only broken stones and overgrown ruins remained to welcome the Targaryens. Though claimed by both Storm's End and Harrenhal, the river mouth was undefended, and the closest castles were held by lesser lords of no great power or military prowess and lords, moreover, who had little reason to love their nominal overlord, Heron the Black. There we go. There's that name again, Heron the Black. Yeah, little reason to love. In fact, that's putting it mildly. They had a lot of reasons to hate. And we have little reason to believe a few years before that statement that it was much different. We're only talking a few years back from what this is saying. So all of the lords of the Crown Lands were concerned about Heron the Black, as well as the King of the Stormlands. But let's start with Heron the Black himself. Kingdom of Isles and Rivers. Not only was there Heron the Black, a.k.a. King Heron Hor, he had at least four sons, two at least of whom were old enough for battle because they would fight in the conquest. Probably all four of them were old enough for battle, though, given how old Heron was. There's also a Lord Edmund Tully who is important in this time frame, or perhaps his father, because it would be Edmund Tully who becomes the new lord of the new high lord, Lord Paramount of the Riverlands after joining Aegon, being one of the first to turn on Heron the Black. So since Heron spent almost 40 years building Heron Hall, the legends famously say it was finished the same day Aegon set foot on Westeros with conquest in mind. So what we're looking at is 25 to 30 years or 35 years into that project. We'll say 20 to 35, something like that, whatever. Huge amounts of progress have been made, but and massive suffering along with it. He basically was enslaving people to do this and raiding other kingdoms. It was terrible. And 
hated by all those he ruled. Again, I'll keep repeating that because it needs to be emphasized. But still a lot of time was left before this castle would be finished. Even though a lot had been done and he had sown a lot of hatred, it was still his main focus for now. But it was like a waiting period. Everybody knew that when he finished, he was going to probably start trying to exercise his power again and start getting back to conquering rather than building this castle that would enable him to extend his domains. So that's what a lot of other rulers were sort of waiting for. And they're like, well, when's the other shoe going to drop? And what are we going to do in the meantime? Obviously, they probably didn't predict Aegon the Conqueror coming along. So they answered the question, that, that answered the question for them, but it must have made them all very anxious. Nino says, it's important to emphasize just how long the Riverlands had been without a strong popular native dynasty of its own. By the time of the conquest, the Riverlands had been around for I've uh, been ruled for around a century by House Hor, that is, by a foreign power which considered all non-Ironborn people slaves destined to work for the benefit of the Drowned God's chosen race. Yeah, the Ironborn considered themselves superior to the, to the people they conquered. But for three centuries before that, the Riverlands were ruled by the Stormlands, by House Durandon. So they weren't independent then either. So this is like 400 years of not independence, right? And going really far back to when there was a king of the rivers, a king of the trident, even that person was a foreigner, a non-native riverlander that established a dynasty over them. So it'd been a long time before the riverlands was self-governed. And it may be something that they didn't really think was possible anymore because it had been so long. But this has been the state of affairs for a really long time. The river lords themselves were often prone to infighting, which is part of what made them more conquerable by outside powers. And it's amazing that finally someone came along that they all hated so much that they were able to unite against him. And that's Heron the Black. You really, really have to make yourself hated to get the river lords to unite against you especially in this era. I mean, they, they teamed up, a, they allied with House Hor to drive out the Storm Kings 100 years ago, and they exchanged a brutal master for a more brutal master who had a better ability to control them because he was closer. The Stormlands are farther away and has a much wider border. And you can attack the Stormlands over land, whereas the Riverlands can't really strike back against the Iron Islands very easily because of the fact that the Iron Islands dominate the sea between them. Yeah. Quite a conundrum for them, huh? So it's no wonder, as Nina writes, that the Riverlands were very happy to join Aegon because this was somebody that they could see was going to probably give them a chance, at least, if not an independence, more independent than they had, like something semi-independent. Now, as we were saying about the area of King's Landing or that would become King's Landing, that was a, certainly a target for Heron the Black to firm up. As soon as the castle's done, that's one of the more, most obvious areas that he's going to extend greater control over. And there's not a lot to say about the Iron Islands themselves at this point in history, but it's worth a few mentions because they were mostly backburnered, right? Heron and his father Halleck and his father Harwin Hardhand had mostly used the Iron Isles as a source of manpower. They would recruit the fearsome Ironborn warriors and use them to dominate this new kingdom. But the whores were different. They were more about the new way than the old way. They weren't big on reaving so much as they were on trade. You might think, oh, they were more 
progressive and modern, in a sense. It's a, it's a step towards a rehabilitated ironborn, but it's not as good as it may sound. Because yes, they were more about trade and making connections rather than reaving and, and full-blown taking. But the reason they were interested in trade is so that they could build up greater military and <laughs> use it for conquest. So they had bigger goals with their military than just reaving and, and stuff like that. So it's still a war economy. It's still a militaristic scenario. It's just a different version of that. It's less religious and glory-focused and more about just standard ruthless pursuit of wealth and power. More, that's more, it's more familiar, right? So Heron and perhaps his unnamed heir, and even, even more so, were thinking, they were planning. This was relatively close to the end. They could probably see the light at the end of the tunnel. Once we finish Heron Hall, I don't even know if they had the name for that yet. They probably did. What can we do? We can go around and, and expand our domains even more. They're probably excited for that. They were probably looking forward to all the rampaging they could do, all the new conquests. And think about, in this scenario, just how awful, like the heir to Heron's seat, he must have been a real piece of work. They treated their subjects, like I said, like second-class citizens. They could do whatever they want to them. There, were, there weren't like prohibitions. So just imagine the worst rich kid you can, the worst brutal rich kid you can that can just get away with whatever he wants. That's probably Heron's heir, if not all his sons. Just riding around the Riverlands doing whatever they want, taking whoever they want, abusing whoever they wanted, doing whatever. Yeah, like that's not good. And the reason I point this out is just to paint a picture of how hated they, they must have been. They never tried to win over their subjects. N not even in prior eras. This was just why I mentioned earlier that it was inevitable that it would fail because if you can't win over your subjects, you just they're gonna, there's going to be a time that you're weak and they will take advantage of and overthrow you. You can't be strong forever. There's got to be dips in your ability to hold them off. And the more they hate you, the more they're going to be willing to take risks to overthrow you. And this is a very, very hated man, a very hated dynasty. So in, from their perspective, they thought they were in an enormously powerful position and on their way to an even more powerful position I mean, think about this. Control of the God's Eye allows you to send ships to the East Coast without having to sail around Dorne. They could also do that with control of the Trident. But that puts you north of Maidenpool and Crackclaw Point, which you also have to sail around. By controlling the God's Eye, they can go straight from the lake right out into Blackwater Bay, which is, I'm sure they were planning on doing that. Yeah, the Targaryens were dominating that region with Dragonstone, but imagine if... Aaron the Black started doing that. And that's probably something Aegon saw and probably something Heron saw too. They both probably realized they would be coming into conflict with each other eventually as they both were looking to the same region for growth. This new way, of course, is going to end. <laughs> Once the Horde dynasty is wiped out by Aegon, he's going to reappoint the Greyjoys and the Greyjoys are going to return to the old way about 100 years later. Those jerks. <laughs> setback, real setback there. So despite all this growth and this gigantic castle, what they were really sowing, and they're allowed to sow, because this is, again, this is House Horror, not House Greyjoy, was hatred. You can rule by fear, you can rule by love, you can rule with a combination of the two, with strength, cunning, administrative talents. But hate, that just doesn't work. Nothing binds people who would never otherwise work together than hate. And only hate stops them from working together when all other options are exhausted, right? 
These guys, the House Horror Dynasty played power politics like mainlanders, but still ruled their subjects like ironborn. And there's little as powerful as hatred in this world. So when Aegon's going to come along and knock them off later, like I said, it's going to make him look really good because you're, you're taking out someone that everyone hated that was just treating people unethically, unjustly, dishonorably. This would also be something that is notable that Aegon would curb the practice of salt wife taking. He didn't eliminate it, but he curbed it, which probably means there was a lot of salt wives in this era. You have to assume that if it was curbed, that there were more of it going on in this time. So that's a good thing that he reduced that. But it's a good example of the kind of anything goes situation that was happening in this kingdom. No wonder people wanted to get rid of it. One of the ways a smaller tyrannical government can hold power over a much larger populace is to encourage infighting. The Riverlands has always been a disunited place, as I've been saying, and as we've said elsewhere. It's probably the region that's had the most different kings and dynasties over its full history. So internal quarreling is like a feature or pastime of sorts. And House Horror took great advantage of this by encouraging that. Now, the Ironborn have always kind of in general lived this way with a lot of infighting. Strong beats strong. Might makes right. You know the song. But that's been curbed by religion because Iron Priests say Ironborn shouldn't make war on each other. Now, of course, they still do, but it's reduced the amount. It's kept a lot of that violence pointed outwards towards other nations. So they're good at that. They're good at this game of back and forth. They're good at encouraging warfare. So what happens when you encourage infighting, blood feuds, and the like in a place with the most famous long-running feud of all time in Westeros? You may have guessed where this is headed when I mentioned the longest-running feud in Westeros and encouraging feuds. And we've got a passage from the World of Ice and Fire to quote. A decade before Aegon's conquest, the Blackwoods and Brackens had entered into a new private war in their ancient feud. Previously, their ironborn overlords had largely ignored such conflicts amongst their vassals. Indeed, if the Iron Chronicle can be believed, Harwin Hardhand oft seen to pit his bannermen against one another to keep them weak. Yeah, and... I said that this is typical because there's lots of examples in real world history where a king will play the powerful nobles against each other in order to keep them from getting too powerful so they can't challenge him. It's a bit of, it's part of the plot of Dune, in fact. Emperor, Padishah Emperor gets the Harkonnens and Atreides to fight each other, partly because they kind of already wanted to, or at least one of them did. So uh, yeah, some, sometimes the groundwork is already laid for these uh, feuds to begin because they only need a little bit of encouragement to, to, start back up again. So clearly, uh, Aaron the Black was learned from his father and uh, kept that going. This is right in our wheelhouse for time frame because as that quote said, a decade before Aegon's conquest, right in there. Now in this case, the quote, if we were to go farther in this passage, what it would say is that in this case, they went so far that Bracken and Blackwood actually their war interfered with the construction of Hall. So Harwin actually had to, I mean, Heron actually had to stop them. I mean, otherwise, he would have just let them tear each other apart. But he's like, hey, you're messing with my castle here. We can't have that. So he went and attacked them both and weakened them both severely, which again sets up Aegon. By the time Aegon comes around, the most powerful vassal of the Horde dynasty 
is the Tullys, who immediately turned on them. Even if Bracken and Blackwood stayed loyal to, to Heron the Black, they were severely weakened by fighting each other and then getting put down entirely by him. So what help would they have even been? And that's why they were not well prepared when the conquest came along. They were both in a period of weakness given, given this had just happened. So put all that together. The Brackens and Blackwoods did turn. <laughs> they didn't stay loyal. They did just join the Tullys and all these others. But had they been at full, fuller strength, it might have been one of them that emerged on top and been granted the high lordship from Aegon instead of the Tullys. But a bigger point, again, is to re- reemphasize the power of hatred here. The Blackwoods and Brackens hate each other. You really have to be hated <laughs> to be like, Bracken, Blackwood, we're going to work together because we hate this guy even more. <laughs> That's really saying something. The Brackens and Blackwoods were like, you know what? We hate Heron the Black even more than we hate each other. So let's do that. Let's join together, right? One of the other few times we see this is in Rob Stark brings them together and Catelyn's like, wow, even the Brackens and Blackwoods are agreeing. That's really something. It's a way to emphasize how unique and powerful Rob's coalition is. In this case, it's sort of the opposite. They like Rob and what's and hate the Lannisters so much. In this case, there's not so much like. It's just pure hate. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, there's a little subtopic that somewhat relates to Heron. It relates to other kingdoms as well, but maybe the trigger point for this topic is the fact that Heron the Black not only was pissing off a lot of other kings and just regular folk with his savagery and brutality and working people to death and stealing all their stuff to build his castle, he cut down a lot of werewoods. So he may have pissed off some supernatural beings as well. Because obviously that's a big no-no. Right? I mean, wars started over that in the past. So we don't know what behind the scenes the children of the forest were thinking about this, whether they wanted to send some curse on him or whether it triggered something in the far north. Maybe this got the others active. Maybe something like this was what got it all started again. Who knows? We don't, we have no idea what made the others come back, whether it was just time or whether there was some trigger. Could be something along these lines. We are told. And even George, George doesn't endorse this theory necessarily, but he mentioned it. And the fact that he even mentioned it is pretty interesting. And the idea is that maybe Aegon the Conqueror needed Westeros to be one realm in order to unite against the others. Now, that's an amazing amount of forethought. 
But again, the fact that George even referenced this, he said, some people have talked about this. It's like the, the way of, it's like, yeah, some people are saying. It doesn't mean it's true. It's just people are talking about it. So he didn't fully endorse it, but George doesn't usually bring up theories at all. Other people's theories at all. This is like an in-world theory that his own characters have. He might refer to that. But referring to fan theories is unusual, which makes me think maybe it's not a, entirely a fan theory. Maybe when George brought that up, he was actually... Yeah. Alluding to something that maybe some of the Targaryens discussed or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that as well. Maybe there's like prophecies. I mean, if it's, there's going to be some prophecies that the Targaryens are going to be the, not an unlikely source for that, right? I mean, obviously prophecies come from other places, but Aegon, maybe uh, one of these other cousins or someone had a vision, uh, dragon dreams. Maybe, maybe, there's like maybe a- he did. Yeah, yeah. maybe there's just a book of Daenys the Dreamer's dreams and Aegon has read it many times Great and point. one of them stood out to him. Signs and portents, yeah. yeah. She wrote down a whole lot of her dreams. Yeah, and so it could yeah. just come straight from that. But it could be from any another Targaryen as well, for sure. And if Daenys the Dreamer's dreams, whatever she dreamed, you got to take seriously because she predicted the doom and that came true. You're like, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Okay, yeah, no, she... It's hard to reject the predictions of someone who called that one. Maybe she was wrong about everything else. And I was like, ah, what you don't know is that all she, a hundred predictions, and that was the only one that was right. No, (laughs) probably not. Probably not. I'm guessing that she had a lot of correct predictions. Nina writes here, a little bit of interest as well. You might wonder how the study of the higher mysteries was going at this time, when there were multiple large living dragons around and the last of Valyria's sorcerer prince families living comparatively close by. Did the Citadel, or at least those maesters, look booking to earn a Valyrian steel link? Or overseeing the teaching of the higher mysteries, think about interviewing the Targaryens or going to Dragonstone to study them or their dragons. Did the glass candles burn at this time? And if so, were they affected post-Doom? Did did the Doom shut them off or did the Doom turn them on? Or I doubt it turned them on, but it could have turned them off, but it may have just made them work less good or who knows? We don't, we know the glass candles are burning now. We don't know when they turned off, right? Uh, hmm. On the opposite side, how much interest did the remaining Targaryens have in keeping up with magic or sorcery? Were they emphasizing this? Were they trying to stoke the flames of sorcery, try to keep it alive? What knowledge they still have, were they encouraging that amongst their, da- their extended family or anything like that? I don't, I don't know, but it's, it seems not unlikely. I mean, it's a source of power. Why would they want to give that up? Why would they want to be like, ah, eh, sorcery, it's not worth it. If it's a... Something that gives them power, I would think they would want to make use of that. People don't give up on power easily, do they? So unless they lost it or couldn't use it, which is entirely possible, you got to think some stuff was going on there. Welcome back, Sean. (laughs) Sean was gone for a little while there. You may have been wondering if you're just listening. You didn't see that he was gone. He was gone for about 20 minutes. Yeah. I've returned from the shadow realm. (laughs) So, catching you back up, we're discussing ideas for magic in this time. Were the glass candles on? Were sort. I didn't want to discuss magic anyway. <laughs> yeah, so. magic's boring. Yeah. <laughs> so, Hair in the Black cut down a bunch of werewoods, which possibly upset some supernatural balance or supernatural beings. And he's right on the God's Eye, which is this mysterious lake right where the Isle of Faces is. So, He's not too far from Dragonstone. The Valyrian sorcerers are closer to the Isle of Faces than they've ever been in terms of pure proximity. So it's an interesting bit of circumstances that we can't get answers from, but it's very compelling to consider. Let me ask a question or two. Yeah. The God's Eye is the big lake almost right in the middle of Westeros. Yeah, yeah. Right, and it has an island on it, which is where the green reserved for werewoods. Ostensibly, there's some 
hold or entity agreement or looking over them. Correct. How isolated is this lake? Does it have rivers running into and out of it? It has one particularly large river that becomes the Blackwater Rush. So it goes to Black... It flows out eventually into Blackwater Bay. But it doesn't have a lot of other river access from the maps. And it flows out, so it's hard to sail upstream. I'm just wondering, I don't know, what, what kind of access, how important... The lake itself is important. You missed that as well, where it, the fact that they already had control over the Trident, so they have strong control over the West Coast because it gives them access to the sea and they already have the Iron Isles themselves. This gave them a path to deploy ships from this giant central castle out onto the lake, down the rivers, and out into Blackwater Bay. So it gives, gives them a whole other theater of control that they didn't have before with this really huge, powerful base to operate out of. So we don't have a lot of stories or insight about the island in the middle of the God's Eye. Not but as much. Heron or someone under him might have done something there too. He might have tried. Yeah, we're... If we're thinking about how he might have disrupted the status quo yeah. to mystical means, that might be something that happened. It's interesting because if he was trying to cut down werewoods because he was using them for beams and things like that, he wanted fancy white wood in his castle, I guess then he may have been like, hey, there's, there's werewoods over there. Let's see if we can get those. But it doesn't seem like he succeeded. For whatever reason, all the same factors that keep other people from being able to reach the Isle of Faces would have been true for him as well. Also, it's kind of... Leave a, it to Euron. Leave it to yeah. Euron. He'll do it's it. It's also kind of awkward, <laughs> like shipping, like sending ships and then cutting down trees. And then that's usually you float trees down river. Like hauling huge amounts of timber like that is is difficult. So... As far as I understand it. So it probably may not have been the best idea anyway. It may not have been something he wanted to do. But it's definitely possible that this was some balance that he upset, kicked off, or played a role in. Yeah, we really wonder what the Valyrians were doing at this time. Was was it waning? Was magic waning for them? Were they... Could have been some deep phase of magical recession could have been what caused them to lose some of these secrets for good. It might be like some phase of particularly low magic that caused them to fall out of practice or just lose their ability to tap in. They, they lost, the people who had that practice lost it because they couldn't keep doing it or couldn't pass the information down to their ancestor or their descendants. Bunch of guesses here, but something, this stuff is definitely going on some form or fashion. And, the, and con- connecting it to the presence of dragons is smart because of, that is presented as a strong possibility within A Song of Ice and Fire. Let me ask another question about the, the state of things, because that's what we're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, Heron was Lord of the Iron Islands, and he expanded into well, he was the king. mainland of Westeros. King. Yeah. King, oh, King of the White, right, right. Well, no, he, he um, didn't expand in the Riverlands. His grandfather did. He took over. His, his grandfather, Harwin Hardhand, conquered the Riverlands okay. from the Stormlands. The Storm, the Storm Kings had the Riverlands. He took it from them. And they, in fact, he incurred, he got them to, to rise up against the Storm Kings and fight for him. And then he treated them even worse. <laughs> and then his son, Halleck, took over. And Halleck was just a similar kind of man, but not as smart and kind of screwed things up, but not enough to lose the kingdom. Heron the Black comes along and Heron's like, okay, here's how we're going to make this work. We build this giant castle because we have, we're low on manpower, we're trying to govern way more people than we have soldiers for, but a giant castle is going to help us do that. And if he had, if he had finished it, it would have been really interesting to see how that exercise of power would have worked out in the long term, whether hatred would have boiled back up against him and he would have been overthrown or whether the very dominant position they had, how long he would have been able to hold that, whether his descendants would have been able to make some moves to hold on to that. It's really, 
really compelling what if scenario. You're stirring even more questions in me than what I already had. <laughs> okay, where did where did Heron and his father and grandfather, where did they rule from? Did they sit at the Iron Islands and send edicts out across Westeros or were they sitting in the Riverlands Good. sending edicts out to the Iron Islands? Great question. King Harwin was mostly a saddle king because he was conquering the Riverlands. So most of, a lot of his reign was just moving around from place to place, conquering and reestablishing and putting down revolts. Ha- uh, Halleck was the second one. Halleck ruled from Fair Market, which is near Harrenhal. It's a small town, but it's not very defensible and not a very kingly seat. And there is no kingly seat in the Riverlands. That's the problem. There's no like one seat you can overthrow and be like, okay, I'm going to take this over. This is mine now, and I can dominate the region with it. It's kind of a feature of the Riverlands is no one ever built a giant castle there, like a really dominant position there until this. So that's what they were doing. They're like, we'll build this huge castle and people will have to look on us as equals. No matter how big a king you are, our castle is now as big as Harry, is now as big as, it's bigger than Winterfell. It's bigger than Castle Rock. Maybe not as rich, maybe not as powerful, but probably, but in that league, bit way bigger yeah. than the Erie, way bigger than Highgard. Again, maybe not as rich, but give it time. So they just like push their way onto the front of the stage. Like you cannot ignore the power of this castle. It's like, we declare, some people declare themselves king and you'd be like, eh, just call himself king. He's not very powerful. But when you have this monstrous castle in the center of the continent and two kingdoms behind you, you're like, yeah, this guy is powerful. And they're making a statement. It's, it's symbolic power and it's real power. Okay, so let me try to keep my thought process. I'm going to ask one question. Who is in charge back in Iron Islands? Kind of like when Tywin is in Castle Rock and he's the hand, but he's still, someone still has to be in charge of Castle... Sorry, Tywin's in King's Landing, but someone still has to be in charge of Castle Rock. When Ned goes to King's Landing, the Stark is always... He left, yeah, he left Bran and Sir Roderick behind a Rob. First Rob, yeah. yeah. And then Rob went off to... So him. who's in charge in Iron Islands? Well, it would probably and, be yeah. someone in his family. He probably left like a, a cousin or uncle in charge, but it's not specified. It's not, we're, we don't no, know. We barely know who it is, much less how competent or yeah. successful We, we have okay. some idea based on who tried to take over. We could guess based on who tried to take over after Heron was overthrown and all his sons were killed. And there was a few people that tried to take power after that, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. It's pretty much guesswork too. So we don't really know. And, but to be, it ended up being the Greyjoys? The Greyjoys were appointed by Aegon. Aegon was like, this is who he's going to rule you now. He decided, he looked into their dynastic history and was like, okay, this one. Because he had, he had a plan. Aegon had a plan that he stuck to for who he appointed and put in charge. He always appointed uh, someone that was medium power. Yeah. Someone that yeah. they wouldn't Makes rally sense. behind. Someone that the, re- the region wouldn't rally behind to come after him. Like Tyrells were not like people... Tyrell, pointing the Tyrells created infighting because other people were like, we're more better than the Tyrells. We should have had Highgarden. So they become the focal point of, of rebellion instead of the Targaryens. It's like they want to take Highgarden. They don't want to overthrow the Targaryens. And it's the same thing happened in River Run. Edmund Tully was given he, it. So the Tully's. He needs someone too. who's strong enough they can't be easily overthrown. Right. Respectable enough that people will have to go along with it. But not strong enough that they're going to rally rebellion. Exactly, which is why the Tullys were perfect, because the Tullys are not like a massive conquering power. But we've seen how hard it is to overthrow them because of their castle. Like, you can't besiege Riverrun easily. Like, taking out Riverrun is really hard. So they're, they're, they have a very defensible position. Maybe it's hard for them to expand their power, but it's really, like you said, really hard to overthrow them because their position is very defensible. And now it's the same, like, to, to a greater extent, that's true for, like, the Lannisters. Like, 
they do have the ability to expand their power because they're so rich and powerful, but it's even harder to overthrow them because their home castle is like, oh my God, how are you going <laughs> to, you can overthrow Castle Rock? How are you going to get in there? Okay, so the, here's a thing I wonder mm-hmm. if Heron had established Heron Hall, if Aegon hadn't come along right at that moment. I wonder if it would have significantly changed in the long run, or even the medium run, the nature of the the Iron Island Kingdom, because part of why they who part of why they were who they were is because they had limited resources. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of farmlands or forests, so they went out and raided. But if they get this foothold on the main continent. Yeah, now they got plenty of resources. They don't need to go reaving and raiding and attacking everyone. They can be more centered around trade and stability. And maybe Heron, maybe the next couple of generations would have been tyrannical, but maybe eventually they might have shifted their gears. So it would have been better off for them to, to make alliances and involve themselves in trade and with the, the powers that be when they're not struggling for resources anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Returning to the question of magic, it's... Very much an open question, of course. We don't know, but it's super interesting. I really, really wonder how play people like the the Ghost of High Art. She wouldn't have been alive in this region, in this era, but like, was there someone living amongst those weirwood stumps? Were they seeing visions or was that out there for, for someone to potentially have tapped into? Were the others active in this time? Probably not, but this may have been the time when they were starting to awaken. I mean, you sleep for 8,000 years, maybe it takes you 200 years to fully wake up. <laughs> so the time frame is a little different. Our relative understanding of time is different, right? When you, when you exist on a different timeline like that. Let's take our mid-roll here, and then we'll get back to our next region. Just Reds pointed out that in the Game of Thrones RPG video game that came out in 2012, that George had some writing hand on. He did involve himself a little bit on this. One of the playable characters is a Westerlands lord, Alistair Sarwick of Riverspring, who is a red priest of Relore, who came back to Westeros after 15 years of exile after Robert's Rebellion and just before the events of the Game of Thrones. So we were talking last week about the lack of red priests and, and how they were coming back in again. And this was something we kind of forgot about. And this is interesting because, yeah, Ashay and I played this game. <laughs> this game was really hard. It was really hard. Yeah, the action stuff was just too much for us. We couldn't get we couldn't get past certain things. Yeah, like, ah, it was like button mind. mashing. Yeah, yeah. So that that that's not the most fun thing. Button mashing. One of our one of your tasks as a red priest is to reestablish yourself as heir to these lands so that you can then spread the light of Relore in the West in the Westerlands, which is kind of neat. So if you play the game right, you and there you end up getting a bunch of Relore followers in the West by the time Danny comes or whatever. <laughs> I don't think the game actually goes to the time when Danny comes, but we certainly didn't get that far. That's pretty cool. It does show some ideas that George has, right? He did have this idea. We were, we were wondering how much the growth of Relore was from the perspectives that we were seeing. But this is like another perspective that maybe we're not seeing in the main series, but from George's perspective in this world, he wants to be growing Relore even in Westeros. Yeah, yeah. And I was also wondering, just it seems common in the real world for religions to, to splinter, to sub to varying degrees. And it seems to happen more the older they are. When Rallor is very old, but as far as we can tell in the book, there don't seem to be splintering. So I was wondering what's keeping them so cohesive, and maybe the ability to communicate through fire is what does it. Mm. 
Could be. Churches and yeah. temples in different lands can keep on the same page by the same visions that they're all seeing or sending out or whatever, you know. Right on. Adam Z writes in from the UK to point to the hammer will fall on the dragon prophecy that comes up early in Fire and Blood. As a possible example of an Andal prophecy, we said we hadn't heard of any Andal prophecies. Now, that one isn't explicitly Andal, but we don't know where it came from. And given Hammer falling on Dragon, it sounds like a win for the Andals. Like, the Hammer defeats the Dragon. The Hammer is a symbol of the Smiths in the Seven. Now, of course, this context is very is different from the way this plays out. We'll discuss that another time. But just from a high-level view, Hammer beating Dragon does sound like it could be an Andal prophecy because I guess I would have assumed wish, it was sort of Valyrian. What's that? I guess I would have assumed it was a Valyrian prophecy. I would probably have too, but it's the, the, I when and we don't know it's a Valyrian prophecy. It's part of what he's saying, but so, you know, I would have assumed that too because most prophecies do seem to be Valyrian or from fire magic or yeah, it's like from yeah, Valyrian has a, an association with prophecy, and this is about dragons, so it's about something relevant to Valyria as well. Yeah, so like, that's true because, like for example, the gold of Castle Rock will destroy, will cause bring the doom to Valyria. That, that's another one that's like a warning prophecy pointed at Valyria. It came from Valyria, presumably. So, yeah. Again, we don't know where this one came from. I sort of agree with you, Shay. There's a good chance this is just another Valyrian prophecy because that's where most of them seem to come from. And given that there aren't other Andal prophecies that we know of, it would be... We would need more evidence to be sure that this one is. But nevertheless, if anything is an Andal prophecy, it could be this one. So, good call, Adam Z. Thanks for the letter. Adriana D.H. says, I don't think Eternal Summer is as bad as Eternal Winter. We talked about the difference there last time with Relore. She grew up where it's essentially summer all the time. Millions of people live in an in-year-round summer on Earth. It's fine. Even in Westeros, 15 years of summer in a row is fine, as long as there wasn't a war. No one says, summer is coming. <laughs> That's a good point. No one's like, summer <laughs> is coming. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, maybe in Death Valley they say that. But yeah, not a lot of people live there, so hmm. I also, she says, I also used to think that six-word story about baby shoes was terribly sad. Then I had kids. It's a real thing that kids sometimes outgrow clothing and shoes before they've actually had a chance to wear them. And so she no longer finds the story so sad. Yeah. Actually, thank you for that. Yeah, does, I, that I, does I, make the story less sad. Yeah, I've read that online for different people as well. They're like, yeah, I had the same thing happen to me. My kid just never got to wear them. Don't have to assume the worst. Yeah. <laughs> but we were, yeah. It's funny how those of us who are not parents are like, oh my God, that's awful. And they're like, parents are like, nah. It's not that bad. <laughs> it's like a, it's only like a one in a thousand chance it's death. It's probably actually just, just it doesn't fit. Thanks for the reality check there, Adriana. But yeah, that good, that's a good point about summer and winter as well. Yeah. Infinite, like permanent winter is like Antarctica. No one lives there. Permanent summer is like the tropics. Like some people really like that. <laughs> I guess so. it also, it somewhat depends on how, what your, what, what summer is. What what is summer in Westeros? Turn up the tropics another ten degrees, and yeah, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like technically, maybe people live in like desert desert areas with summer all year long too. Yeah, that's they make it work. Yeah. So like, it's not it's not inhabitable entirely. It's a good point. Yeah, if if it's so hot that it turns the place into a desert eventually, then that's that's as bad as yeah, winter. like eternal summer in Dorne might be a lot worse than eternal summer in in King's Landing. Yeah, that's for true. Example. I guess it's worth noting summer. I mean, first of all, the seasons in general are more about like the positioning of the sun than anything. But uh, we, we seem to be talking about summer in terms of how hot it is. But a bigger factor in climate or survivability is rainfall. 
That's mm. the thing that matters. Is there enough rain to support? Yeah. It's not the, the temperature in the Sahara and, and the Amazon is about the same, but one has water and one doesn't. That's what really matters. Yeah, good point. Great point. Thanks for the letter, Adriana. From Pam, plain and tall regarding Taoism, which is another religion that gives us an example of uh, light and dark and opposites. And we talked a lot about that last time with Relore. She says, here's a quote that, uh, a poem, I guess it is, that uh, indicates that. When people see some things as beautiful, other things become ugly. When people see some things as good, other things become bad. Being and non-being create each other. That definitely touches on some of the stuff we were talking about last time. Right, Sean? It does, but I still have the same, I don't know, opinion. The, the idea that like you need evil in order to have good. I mean, I, it, I don't think that's completely wrong, but I also don't think it's that simple. It's, I think it's a little yeah. pessimistic to say, when you see something ugly, it means other things, uh, or when you see something beautiful, it means other things ugly. I, I don't think that that's not true. But you could also say, when you see something as beautiful, it means something else is gorgeous and something else is pretty and something else is cute and something else is sexy. It's not just <laughs> binary, beautiful or ugly. There's a range of yeah. how you can well, perceive things. Point. And you could also have a thousand beautiful things and one ugly thing. It's, it doesn't mean we can't have beautiful... Does that make sense? I don't think it's as simple it as it's one is good and one is yeah, bad and they're equal. One, and, yeah. it's, it's a great right. point because if it's like light and darkness, well, that's like... Black, that in a sense, that's black and white thinking, right? There has to be, and in this, in a song of ice and fire, we we certainly emphasize the grays, which is this isn't saying those things don't exist, but it's still a philosophical point. And I agree with the, I agree with the, I agree with bringing it up as an example that fits. Yeah, Absolutely. I appreciate the the sentiment and the the thought, yeah. and even the thoughts it sparks in me. But I also just think that. Within light and dark, there's light blue and dark blue and light red and light dark red. To, and to be like, fair, she also used the... Yeah, you're right. To be fair, she also used the example of the, of the yin-yang symbol with the yin and the yang each have a little bit of the other color in them. There's the black, but it has the white dot. And the, yeah. So they're not full. That is to kind of represent the gray, I think. I'm not super up on my Taoism, but I believe that's part of what's being represented. She also used the example of Wheel of Time because Wheel of Time has the black and white pairing as well as a symbol for the white tower. The Ace to Die have that sigil. So that's cool. Another nice little catch there. A little, little fantasy crossover. George is certainly a fan of Wheel of Time. The Stormlands, one of the larger figures of this era. King Argilac the Arrogant. Let's hear what was going on in the Kingdom of the Stormlands during this time. The Kingdom of the Storm shrank king by king, battle by battle, year by year. The fall was halted briefly when a fierce warrior prince, Argolac, called the Arrogant, donned the stag's crown. But even a man as mighty as he could only stay the tide, not turn it back. Last of the Storm Kings, last of the Durandon, Argolac did just that for a time. So yeah, this is, this is a big deal. Argolac, the Stormlands were a fading kingdom. They, they had become powerful. As I said, they had conquered the whole Riverlands and then they lost that 100 years back. And that decline was continuing. They not only lost the Riverlands, but their borders were being pushed in a, back in a couple different places. And as it says, Argilac turned that tide because he was such a great leader. He was such a strong, charismatic, smart leader. Imagine Robert, but a lot smarter, right? That's kind of what Argilac was, but also probably a bigger, bigger jerk. Not as friendly, a little more ruthless. Because Robert was kind of a passive leader in times of non-war, whereas Argilac was, sounds like he was just fierce all the time. <laughs> no matter what job, whatever role he was playing as 
battle commander or king of administration or king of on the battlefield. Whichever it was, he was aggressive and, and proud. And well, like his name says, arrogant. As of the conquest, he's old and gray and was feared and successful in his time. So this is probably the in-between his prime and his fading years, as we'll call them. So he's probably not old and gray yet, but he's definitely not in his peak five to 10 years right before this. That His peak was probably more like 20, 25 years before the conquest. I, I realize I'm not clear on how the conquest went down with Stormlands. Did he bend the knee? Were they? Oh, he died in battle. Yeah, there, there, there was like... Uh, the last storm. He fought... Was there a Baratheon siege outside the castle? Am I remembering No, that? he came out. He wanted to... He emerged. He didn't want to do a siege, especially because they had a dragon. So he, he led his army out and fought Oris and Rhaenys. And Rhaenys, it was, it was raining, so the dragon wasn't as effective as normal, but still very effective. Oris decided to make... To order his men to stand aside after it was near the end and, and fought... Argilac in single combat and beat him. So it really emphasized. It was a symbolic victory. And How old was Oris? Aegon's age-ish. 28. So it, it was, 30. it seems like kind of a ceremonial thing. If Argilac was like in his senior years, yes. then probably it was just... And he had already been fighting and was already wounded and Oris wasn't. Although Argilac still wounded Oris. <laughs> so he was, yeah. If they had both been fresh... Argalax still might have won. Like that's this this guy was a real, real beast of the battlefield, real, real tough guy to, to fight. And he had that Baratheon temper because some of the moves he made in this battle, despite being smart, were not smart. Like he 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 did some of these, but this is the things we'll cover when we get to the actual conquest. He had a daughter, Princess Argella, who Oris married afterwards, you know, took her as his bride and continued the dynasty through through him. She was also stubborn, proud, and brave like so many other Durandans before. But it's interesting that she was, she was unmarried and young where he's this old man. So kind of implies that he either had other children that died younger, like he outlived or he remarried. But we don't know who, if he had a wife at this point, she was not in the picture or not mentioned. So yeah, he may have had sons or nephews. And now he went, as we said, he led an army into the disputed lands in his, some 20 years before the conquest, 25 years before the conquest, during the century of blood. So he was part of the reason the Volantines were stopped. So was Aegon. It's kind of funny. They both, they didn't work together, but they both fought against Volantis <laughs> in different battles to stop Volantis's imperial ambitions. He's, he was playing like Robert Baratheon. Remember what Robert says to Ned? He's like, we should just get out. Let's just leave and just go be sellswords and just go fight by our you know, strength of arms and just live that way. Argilac led his army into the disputed lands, which is a, the, the, the haunt of sellswords, right? That's, he's, he did, it says he did it for golden glory. So it's like, he went and did something a sellsword captain would do, led his army into the disputed lands and fought against like this foreign army just for, to make some cash and because he liked the action. Part of me wonders if Robert might have been inspired by that, but another part of me thinks Robert probably didn't learn about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robert probably, that's history. Like, Even if yeah. someone taught him, he wasn't paying attention. He might have heard a little <laughs> bit about this. He would have paid attention during yeah. the battle parts. He was like, oh, he did wait. Okay, tell me about that part. But yeah, the whole like, the he, he would have fallen asleep during the going across the water and how all that was accomplished. But then like, once the battle starts again, he's like, all right, I'm interested. <laughs> did he have a big hammer or <laughs> did he use a, what did he wield? 
most of the political dealings that the Durandans would have had in this era would have been with the Reach, Dorn, Heron the Blacks, uh, and maybe Halakor before, depending on who was older, Argalak or, or Heron the Black, and narrow sea powers like the Free Cities and the Pirates of the Stepstones. So those would have been his the people that he was dealing with. And in Dorn, Dorn was the Yellow Toad, and the Reach was Myrn. And interestingly, he killed a, a, a Reach, a King of the Reach in battle when he was younger as well. So this, this, again, this is another feather in this guy's cap, a real badass. He's also the guy who gave Princess Mary her nickname, the Yellow Toad. He's credited with, with that. Hey, he also is clever. I don't know. <laughs> Nina says it's important to note that the Durandan kingdom was at a nadir of a few centuries of decline by the time of Argilac's reign. At the dynasty's acme under Arlen III, the Durandans had controlled an empire that stretched from the Neck in the north to the Dornish marches in the south and from Tarth all the way to Ironman's Bay in the west. But after the death of Arlen III, it just was eaten away by gardeners, martels, whores until this point, until it was all their conquests were gone and they were reduced to their original region. And it started to lose some of that. It was Arak who we mentioned as the last king, the last storm king of the Riverlands. That was Argilac's grandfather. So it was his own grandfather that lost the Riverlands and lost them to House Hor, who he's now anxious about. If some of you may recall your conquest lore, Argilac tried to broker a deal with Aegon where he married his daughter to Aegon and gave Aegon the Blackwater as, dow- as a dowry. He's like, well, that's a big gift, but it wasn't his. He's giving lands away that weren't his. <laughs> so what he was trying to do is to create a buffer state between, he's like, I'm going to put the dragon lord in between my borders and the, and the Iron King's borders so that if he's coming to march south, he has to go through the dragon lord first to get to me. But he did this very like ham-fistedly. <laughs> and Aegon was like, I see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, didn't work. Great if it did work, but there was pretty much no way it was going to work. Yeah, so this is a very interesting character. Also not very popular, though. Like, he, he was a warrior king. Like, within his own domain, he was popular. He wasn't hated by his own. But as I said, he killed a, a Reach King in battle, so they, didn't, they weren't big fans. And obviously, Argilac was no fan of Heron the Black, so they weren't on good terms. The irony that they seemed to be struggling before the conquest, and now they're, well, eventually they're, their leader became the king. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, very true. Okay, the North. Let's talk about the North. Yes, this is a particularly interesting one. The last known ruler was King Torin Stark, the king who knelt, the one who, when faced with Aegon and his dragons, decided to kneel. And that's a little unusual because of the general disposition of Stark kings and lords as one of toughness, one of not bending the knee, one of independence. Rob Stark, at a provocation, declared independence. It was a severe provocation, but you see that they were, he was ready to do that. Of course, it was the great John's idea, but everyone got behind it. It was like, yeah, what a great idea. So Torin maybe was a little more thoughtful, a little more forward thinking than a lot of other Stark rulers. Unfortunately for him, his decision to kneel would have some fallback or pushback from his constituents because they expected the Stark to be a little tougher about it to, to at least go down fighting, which tells us 
a lot about the state of affairs 15 years before that happened. This is the North's kind of been what it's been. Yeah, there there might have been some pushback if he hadn't been the knee also. There would have been at least some people. They, I, I guess some people might have been upset that our fields are burned, our town is destroyed. Or if not pushback, they would have just been dead. The people that were pushing back, you shouldn't have done that, would have been dead. They wouldn't be alive to push back. So I don't know. I'm totally behind Torn Stark's knee bending in this scenario. Yeah, I mean, from a purely like, could he have won point of view? Like, no. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just stubbornness and arrogance among people in power that they are not thinking about the lives of their people when they want him to stand up to a dragon. (laughs) So Aegon only took 10,000 or so, 15,000 men to the Field of Fire, where the Lannisters and Reachmen brought 55,000 men. Aegon had already gotten the submission of the Crownlands, the Stormlands, and of course the Riverlands as well, and parts of, and and the Vale by this point. And effectively the Iron Islands. Right. But he only brought, he only brought 15,000 men. He could have brought a lot more. And this is just a puzzling question. Why didn't he bring more? Well, the reason I think my headcanon is, is because he knew he didn't need them and he wanted to prove how deadly the dragons were in battle. He's like, look, they have four times as many men as we are and we beat them badly. Why? Obviously because of the dragons. That sends the message. You and me and Ashea are all sitting here like, why would they even fight the dragons in the first place? Because they didn't know. It had been hundreds of years since armies faced dragons. They didn't know. They have this natural pride, their arrogance even. You don't bend the knee so lightly. They've had these kingdoms for thousands of years. You don't give up so easily. Once the reality of facing dragons got out, it's like, okay, maybe you do bend the knee. One of them burnt Harrenhal. This, the gardeners were entirely wiped out on the field of fire. And so let me like, why? And, and that's what Torin was faced with. He's like, okay, yeah. Because when, when Aegon brought his army north and Torin brought his army south, Aegon had more men than Torin. So he brought all those men. He had more men and all three dragons, whereas he had just beaten all the, <laughs> the West and the gardeners without badly outnumbered. This time he was outnumbering the Starks. So like the Starks like, okay, so he beat a much bigger army with a lesser army. Now he has triple that amount, which is more than I have, and he still has the dragons. So yeah. In some ways, it's just blatant. It's like, it's obvious. He, his, his scouts also saw Harrenhal and like, oh my God, look at that. It's burned. It was still smoking, they say. It was still like smoldering weeks later. Going back to your, your board game analogy, yeah. right? That a lot of time in like a multiplayer strategy type game, when one person starts to get a significant advantage, other people team up against them and it, it kind of restabilizes. And someone can have an advantage but if someone starts to get enough of an advantage to take out their neighbors, their neighbors team up against them, right? Yeah. But the difference is in a board game, everyone has semi-perfect information. Mm. Everyone can see everything and everyone's yeah. kingdom and what's going you on. How many pieces on the but board in, they have, yeah. Right. In the real world, the people, even the soldiers, the king, they can't necessarily see the, the supply lines and resources of the other side. When they can, a lot of times they make better decisions. That's why you have scouts. That's why you have intelligence and so on. And so kind of like the dragon, you you can't see when you're thinking about how to deploy your army, you're thinking about what you've done in the past. You're thinking about what the gardeners have or the Starks have or whatever. And you're like, they have this many troops and this cavalry will go to this hill. But none of this is accounting for what the dragon's going to do. Mm-hmm. And they're just not doing that. Yeah. And at some point, they probably should have. And when Stark did, this is making me think about like World War One when they're just not used to like trench warfare machine guns. 
and they're just like suiciding troops in. And when we look back at that, we think of the terrible tragedy it was, not the proud leaders. We're thinking about the the naive, stubborn, irresponsible leaders Old, that should, yeah, have should have handled new, things differently. Yeah, should have yes. adopted whether it's surrendering or, or a new strategy or anything, yeah. but they just were not realizing the reality of what's happening on the battlefield right now. And Countless people died because of it. That is a torn start prevented that. That is a really good analogy, yeah. Because yeah, the the kings of West and Reach, of course we can win. Like that, we'll get to Mern in a minute. But he he was so arrogant that he brought his entire family to the battlefield. Like not not the women, <laughs> yeah. but like his grandsons were squires, and like he wanted them all in the front. It was like this is dumb, man. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Mm-hmm. But sticking with Torin. Yeah. An interesting factor about him, kind of an under-the-radar quality that, that adds to the mystique or the idea that this was an intelligent guy. He got his army together really fast, and it was big. Remember how Rob was in a hurry, and he got together about 18,000 men? Torin was in a hurry as well, and he got together 30,000. That implies a probable experience at having done this before, which Rob hadn't, clearly. <laughs> B, maybe just a natural talent for it. Like he, he's good at logistics, administrative stuff. And you're always someone that values that. So this is, this is probably noteworthy. Like, how do you get all the, like the North is so big, getting all those men together, armed yes. and equipped and having enough food and the then marching south and all that. It's The really, North being more populated that much in the past seems strange to me too. That would be my yeah. thought was that maybe like there were more fighting men available to him straight up. That's possible, but probably not that many. Yeah, more, exactly. That's why I'm like, it's so many. I just, I can't imagine like there was that. I mean, maybe there was. Maybe it's one of those sicknesses came through and they really wiped out the population in the North along with other places. And there really are fewer people that live in the North in Rob's time than there were in Torrens. Like, I feel mm. like that is possible. I don't think that accounts for the whole thing, but like maybe 5,000 people or something. Yeah. I think it's possible, but even with that, I still don't think it. It just naturally populations increase over time. Yeah, exactly. You know, that would be with, weird to when me. Two but, people have you know. three kids, and in each of those have three kids. So like maybe the average I mean, is always, lower than three. There could be setbacks, but in the but, past, yeah. averages were higher in general than they are now. Yes. Population. I mean, just for all of history, the population keeps growing and growing. True. So, <laughs> um, most places, there could yeah. be little moments, but it, but it's it also just, true that like know, there could be, like, the population has grown in other places and not in the North, necessarily, as so here, much. Here's another factor I think that should be considered. Let me throw this at you guys. This is an independent North. There may be more national pride in what is a fight for their independence, which was what Rob was doing as well. But this was declaring independence where they had been under the Iron Throne for 300 years at that point and, and things were fine. They weren't like, oh, it's, this Iron Throne has been ruling us badly for 300 years. No, they had done fine under the Targaryens. It I was... Obviously, killing Ned was a reason for them to get mad, but that wasn't necessarily a reason to throw off the whole thing. And there might have also just been, for Torin, more of an impetus on like, yeah, this is the end all be all. We all have to go. Whereas for Rob, people were like, yeah, maybe half of us should stay back. Yeah. There might have been some people who just didn't go because it was super dire. Yeah. And again, given the pushback against Torin's decision to kneel, you could see a lot of people wanted to fight. Like, there were a lot of them were like, damn it, we should have fought. Like, even with seeing the dragons and the being outnumbered, they still wanted to fight. They were still upset that he knelt. So that implies there was a, an energy, like a lot of people were up for this fight, you know. I see Jordan's James does point out, by the way, that I, I was thinking, I was like, the North lost fighting men. 
between Robert's Rebellion and the Greyjoy Rebellion. And then like that, I, I, I considered okay, Robert's Rebellion, but I've forgotten that the Greyjoy Rebellion probably would have culled the numbers of fighting people. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Whereas before the conquest, there maybe wasn't anything. Hadn't the North also been in wars before the, uh, conquest? the conquest also? Wasn't it's there the Worthless War? The Worthless War had been an on and off thing, and it's unclear exactly when it ended. But yeah, that would have probably not ended that long before. And again, if, if we're looking at Torin's ability, if we're saying, wow, he got his men together really quick, one of my points was uh, it implies he's done it before. He probably didn't call the banners just as an exercise although in those other times. So maybe he just already had an there army must have standing. Been some kind of, yeah, maybe that. that. Yeah, maybe that, you maybe you hit on something accurate there. That maybe he just had a standing army, kind of near, close to ready. Some of them. He, he was. He was more. More. Yeah, he kept them more ready. Like he was more. Like he might have uh, just like two years yeah. ago gone to war and been like, okay, well, mm. let me hit up the same people. He may have even true. seen something like this coming. He may have been like, okay, it's only about these dragon lords. Is that what you were gonna I, say, Sean? Yes, I was gonna say part of logistics is planning. Yeah, and he might. This isn't as sudden as what happened. With with Ned and Aegon, right? Yeah, I think that I think that he might have he and the other people of the North might have realized this thing. If it, it may have had years to like see this coming and be thinking about how to respond and what to yeah. do and you know, mobilizing food trains and armaments and and sentiment and so on. Just because some of the other kings I think, didn't see it coming doesn't mean he didn't. Yeah, Torin maybe. Even if he had a standing army, like Ashe is saying, that's the logistics. He still had to organize those soldiers and keep them fed and armed. And I think almost any angle you look at this, it came down to him being better prepared logistically. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he, so, which is kind of ironic, he was better prepared logistically to march that big old army down there and just not fight, which... Still, that was the correct play. But, I mean, the, the, the kneeling part. <laughs> but it's a very interesting story going forward. This thing we'll have to cover separately as well, which is this reaction to in the North. That'll be a fun thing to cover when we talk about the conquest from the North's perspective and the events that come afterwards. So let's talk about the Worthless War for a minute here. This is the also called the War Over the Water, which was the very long so-called a thousand-year battle, probably not quite that long, probably not even close, probably hundreds of years, and it would be an off-and-on thing. But, you know, it's possible they first started fighting over it a thousand years before. Was the sisters, the, the three sisters in the bite, the control over the sisters. The sisters themselves are not very strong, but kind of like the Stepstones, it's, it's not the location, it's, it's not the, the islands themselves, but where the islands are. The person that controls the sisters has the better ability to control piracy in the region. The Starks, of course, had a vested interest in controlling piracy in that region because that's where White Harbor is. It's very important for them. And the Vale wanted to control it because, well, they have Gulltown farther south and a lot of settlements in the north there. And also just because well, they wanted to fight over it. <laughs> the Starks wanted it and the Aarons wanted it. And they, no one knew how to give up. <laughs> Eventually, the Stark did just kind of go, why are we fighting over this? This is worthless, right? This is, this is the, perhaps the geopolitical situation shifted enough that they just didn't need to fight over. And they're like, yeah, why, why are we doing this? Yeah, sometimes the word worthless doesn't necessarily mean not worth anything. It means worth less than what we put into it. Yeah. And that yeah. seemed to be the case. Chasing a sunk cost in this case, yeah. <laughs> That's a whole nother topic. Well, maybe we'll cover the war of the water separately at some point. It was a, brutal and, and vicious and and a lot of back and forth Starks and Aaron's though it's kind of interesting in that sense because you don't see a lot of there's not a lot of examples of Stark versus Aaron so on the wall 
that's worth checking in on the wall at this point. The last known Lord Commander, very interesting, son of Halakor, brother to Hair in the Black. Yeah, so Hair in the Black, Br- Black's brother was Lord Commander on, uh, at, when the conquest happened, which means maybe he wasn't at this point, but he probably was, given how old Heron was. How did he get to be on the wall? We don't know. It's, it's uh, Our hmm. guess is, Nina, I'll go with Nina's guess, which is that she, well, I'll read what she wrote. I'd wonder whether Heron himself exiled his brother to the watch in order to eliminate competition. If Urathon the fourth good brother was willing to put his brother's sons to the sword in order to secure his king's mood election, this is, this is nothing compared to that. This is sending someone to the wall is nothing like killing them. And this would be a way to avoid the Kinslayer charge or what have you, which is a pretty big deal, even, even among the Ironborn, especially because he's trying to rule non-Ironborn. So he doesn't want to look like a cursed ruler, even if he doesn't believe in that. No reason for the political negativity there. So it could have been, yeah, it could have been a, a rival. He could have seen him as a rival. I mean, a lot of these like ruthless, powerful power brokers uh, think everyone else is just as ruthless and powerful and power hungry as they are. So anyone with your bloodline is, is a potential threat. Wait, what was the name of the brother that went to the wall? We don't know. Oh, we don't even know. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you might have been, I don't know, had some motivation like John, where mm-hmm. like, yeah, you'll go up there and for honor or whatever, yeah. <laughs> like the wildlings. Yeah, like, and, and also I wonder if maybe on some level it might've been a political move. It might've endeared him a little to the North. If the North might've been a little more okay with, yeah, Heron, go ahead, build your castle. We're not, we're not worried about He's you. He's not as direct a threat it, to them. Yeah. yeah you, you've made peace with us by sending your brother up to the wall. You That's know, something, it's something, yeah. And, it's got almost like a marriage, not yeah. as, quite as strong or as impactful, but along that line. And you wonder what he thinks, what he himself thought about this brother, but we know that he did nothing he did what the Night's Watch is supposed to do. He didn't. He had 10,000 swords. The Night's Watch was a lot bigger in this era, and he didn't come do anything. He didn't bring his men south or anything when the conquest broke out, even when his brother was being attacked, which is correct. That's what the Night's Watch is supposed to do. He may have been happy to do nothing. He'd been like, I hate my brother. I'm definitely not doing it. I wouldn't have done any of it, even if, I, even if it was allowed. <laughs> which is ironic, though, because Aegon's conquest is the beginning of the end for the wall uh, in terms of a source of manpower because one of the biggest sources of manpower for the wall was the endless wars between these other kingdoms where a lot of the losers would end up getting sent to the wall. Aegon's, the king's peace, ironically reduced the wall's manpower. It was a good thing. And the quality of their manpower because, yes, fighting men being sent there versus just Just criminals. criminals. Instead of both. Yeah, instead of both. Yeah, (laughs) it becomes all, almost, yeah, like nine out of ten are criminals instead of half or four out of ten or something. Yeah. Good points, y'all. Very good points. Let's talk about the veil. The veil. The veil. Last known ruler would have been, well, we don't know the name, Lord Aaron, but the husband of Shar Aaron, who was, quote, the flower of the mountain. She's queen regent for her son, young Ronald Aaron, at the conquest. Ronald was young enough to sit on Visenya's knee during the conquest, implying he's quite young. Seven, eight. What does that say to y'all? When you hear sitting on someone's knee. No older than eight, probably. Yeah. That would be my guess. For a boy, usually. I, that would just be my guess. I would say probably between five and eight. He goes, mother, can I ride the dragon? And the mother's like, yes. And then she surrenders. She's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> Visenya, you've got my son in your lap. Like, yes, you win. <laughs> yeah, like, I, like, for example, I don't think I sat on Santa's lap at nine, but I did at seven. Because the the, so the wiki, technically the wiki, it's possible for him to be as old as like 17. 
But if, <laughs> if you're 17 sitting on Visenya's lap saying, I want to ride the dragon, it takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> Robin might have sat on Lysa's lap. I can't 17. believe no, I cannot true. believe the wiki says that Ronald Aaron could have been 17. Yeah, well, they don't know where to cut yeah, it yeah, off. No, yeah, they don't know where. There's some line somewhere, but I think 17 is well past. Way too high, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think it could be 17, why not 19 or 21? Well, that, there's, that's, yeah. that's impossible because of, I think, certain other factors. I think 17 is the upper okay. limit based on other... I can't think of why, but yeah. But yeah, so I I'm, I think so. I think seven or eight. I think yeah. definitely ten. Like I think there's no chance that they were above ten, and I I do think eight is more like a nine. But like I had no chance over ten year old boy. I don't know. Oh. I, yeah. I, also, it's worth noting the the other end of the spectrum. Like a, a two month old baby can't really sit no. on your lap. You would be or holding your arms or say, "Mother, I want to." F- well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like a four-year-old struggles with speaking so clearly as that either. So I think at least five, I think probably five to eight. Yeah. A four-year-old, I think you're underestimating kids. I, so I've, I've been around like, some four-year-olds recently and I don't think they speak as clearly yeah. as being quoted as mother, can I please ride the dress? You know, this is like, the future king of the veil you're speaking yeah, of, like, not just some... No, it's just going to be a little more childish. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like uh, five-year-olds I've interacted with can, can speak more clearly than... I don't know, there's some. I have a niece that's two, yeah. and she—you would be amazed, okay. you know. Like she, oh. she was standing on a, a fox, like a stuffed fox, and my dad asked her, "Are you going to hurt the fox?" She's like, "No, the fox is my platform." So, Whoa. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she might be an advanced two-year-old, but uh, yeah. He also had a younger brother. Unfortunately, this younger brother would be used against him later in a Aaron versus Aaron civil war, and it got ugly. But. Jonos is this younger brother is named Jonos. He's kind of our marker because if Shara's regent, that means her husband, Lord Aaron, died, but he couldn't have died that long ago if Jonas, Aaron, this younger brother, this younger son exists, right? He so he had to have died in between Shara being pregnant with Jonos and sometime after that. So my guess is that 15 years prior to the conquest, King Aaron was alive and well, and married to Shara, who would have been 22. So they're probably married by that point. But fast forward maybe five, ten years later, and he's in between that, he's passed. But he's they've gotten these two sons in between as well. And maybe he it's like a John Aaron situation. It is like a John Aaron situation, because you have a young you have a, a regent and a young son who is in charge. And but what I mean in this particular case is that maybe Shara wasn't Lord, King Aaron's first wife, just like Lysa wasn't John Aaron's first wife. But it is the first person he had kids with or at least ones that survived. They also could have possibly had children before Jonos and, and Ronald that just died. And Ronald was the oldest boy that lived. But these are always, these are the standard guesses about families and stuff. Uh, so she sounds really interesting, Shara Aaron. Remember that when the conquest was announced, she offered herself to Aegon as a third wife as long as Ronald was named heir to the Iron Throne. Well, there was no Iron Throne. As long as Ronald was named heir to... Aegon. This is a bit outrageous as an ask. It's like a negotiation. You ask for a lot, settle in the middle, maybe. But it's also, but it's, remember what we're partly trying to get at is what kind of person this was. Even though it has yet to happen in the timeline that we're talking about, this, this offer, it says a lot about her as a person, I think. It's also a little less outrageous than it sounds. Aegon, at age 27, with two wives, had no kids. Maybe he was never going to have kids. Maybe he was infertile. Maybe he was sterile. 
maybe both his wives were infertile. That's less likely, but something may be up, right? That's going to make some people scratch their heads and go, hmm, he's 27 with two wives and doesn't have a kid yet. That's very interesting. So she's like saying, she, and of course she's not saying make my son heir no matter what. She understands that in that scenario, if he has a trueborn child with his queen, one of his queens, then that kid go jumps to the front of the line as far as successor. But if she's one of those three queens, that might be her kid. So she might get the heir either way, right? So she's, it's a pretty, obviously it'd be great for her if this was offered. And she might be thinking, yeah, and because those other two haven't born many sons, I have had kids. Maybe, maybe this will really work. So she's considering all the angles here. It looks like a great move for her. But of course, Aegon's like, no, that's not going to happen. Two wives is enough. <laughs> I don't ally. I dominate. That's consistently his position on things. He's like, no, I don't have allies. I'm, I have subjects. <laughs> Everyone who offered to ally with him, he's like, no. <laughs> like, you want to fight Heron? I'll help you beat Heron. He's like, no. You can help me beat Heron, but as my vassal. <laughs> but not, we're not allying. We're not equals. But the thing about this that makes it even more outrageous and says something about her personality is that the veil is the hotbed of seven worship. It's the place where the seven first landed in Westeros. She's offering herself to be part of a polygamous marriage to dragon lords. The Andals hate the dragon lords. That's who drove them out. A lot of their cultural heritage is running away from dragon lords and their enslavement and their cult, a lot of their cultural tenets are exactly the opposite of Valyrian cultural ideals. So the faith, had this happened, which of course it didn't, the faith would probably not have been chill with that arrangement. They'd be like, what now? <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah, the Lady like, of the Veil's doing what? <laughs> yeah, they might have been like, yeah, those Targaryens, those are like heathens. Who cares oh, really what they're doing? Oh, wait, wait, a good God-fearing, like seven-fearing faith woman? Yeah, that uh, Doing nice. that, that's too far. <laughs> I wonder how that might have gone. I wonder if the seven would have, if the, the, the religious leaders of the seven would have had to come around and accept it, or if they would have been eliminated. If, if they tried to resist, if they were like, all right, we're going to go burn all the steps down with our dragons now, <laughs> we'll teach you. <laughs> Find some new religion or accept us. Yeah. So it's really interesting, like the consideration, the angles that Shara has here. A, she can insert herself into the royal family. B, she can ally with the, see which way the wind is blowing and, and ally with the, or at least get on the, the, the good side of the people who are likely to win. Side with the winners. That's a standard power move. And she can also see, though, the, the, despite the strength of the dragon lords here, given the situation with lack of children, she could also see where just like a, an arrow here or there or a poison or something, a faceless man could just, that would be the end of it. They don't have kids. They don't have to, this emerging power could just collapse all of a sudden due to lack of like heirs or just a key person dying. So she's also taking a significant gamble by trying to jump on this bandwagon. So it's a very, she's a brave. I say this is a bold choice. This is a bold woman willing to make a lot of power moves, willing to be very pragmatic willing to mix it up, willing to sacrifice a lot to do anything, like willing to give up things that are important to her to, to come out on top, which is you know, a power player, you know, real, real Game of thrones or <laughs> Sucks to have this scenario where just marriages and children are the 
how we pick our leaders out, but or were they or us in the past or whatever. But given that, it it is a good play for her to make, and it is like a sacrifice she's willing to make. So on. By the way, what what if Aegon had died? What if he did get sick or fall off his dragon or something like that? <laughs> That's what, a big what who, if. How would power? I, I'm guessing one of the wives Visenya would have was just the elder. married someone else yeah. and their kid, and it would have gone on. It wouldn't just been the end of it all, right there, right? Yeah. Yes, you're right. Like Visenya would have Visenya would have been the lady of Dragonstone. And she would have probably taken a husband, probably a Valarian, but maybe someone else. Maybe she would eventually, have seen a reason to marry someone else for, for power reasons or whatever. Eventually, they did have kids, so they weren't infertile. Right. Right? Each one of them had uh, one, but, yes. But what if they had been? Well, yeah. There are, and there are theories about whether about that as well. Yeah, there are theories that, that neither of those kids are legitimate. Yeah, the, yeah, they would still be Targaryens because they would still be Rhaenys's yeah. and Visenya's respectively, but aren't necessarily Aegon's. The theory, yeah, because or like, other variations on that. Rainey surrounded yeah. herself with handsome men, <laughs> so there's like, hmm. And Visenya dabbled in black magic and didn't have Magor until she was like 38 or 39. So there's like, mm-hmm. and he came out so cruel and twisted and huge and psychopathic. There's maybe there's a magical origin behind that. Maybe there's some dark, like some she used a little it- magic to make that happen or something. It seems like George at least wants to keep those doors open. Yes. Something along the line to happen. I, I also had thought that the fact that they hadn't had kids yet might be an indication that the marriage is not out of love as much as tradition or, or power monopolization or something like well, that. Well, it's well known you know, that he back. married Rainey's for love. That would have been well known, but still wasn't having okay. a kid with her, which is that's still like added to the whole like scenario. Like, hmm, he's, he married her for love, so they're probably sleeping together a lot still. No kid. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. So Nina has another angle here that's interesting. She considers the possibility that, that Shara may have been thinking if Aegon accepts this marriage and the faith gets involved, because yeah, we, like we said, they're not chill about it. The way that could play out is, well, she's the only seven worshiper in the mix here. She should be the wife that counts. She's the one that got married under the auspices of the seven the two incestuous queens should be put aside and the descend the, the children from her body are the ones that matter should matter first no matter what else happens with the other queens if the faith backing see that it could be a couple generations later at least how that might if there's some con- contest for the throne that there would be some contingency of people that would take that route yeah and the faith was a big problem 30 years after the conquest and it's actually an interesting question right now it's actually a question we have coming in a bit what was the faith doing in this era? They don't, they're not a big part of any of this. There's pretty good reasons for that, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So what, is all this, what else does this say about Shara? And Nina says, I'm so curious to know more about Shara Aaron. Presumably Shara was originally from the Vale since, quote, in her youth, Queen Shara had been lauded as the flower of the mountain. But what family was she from? Given Ronald Aaron's apparently young age at the time of the conquest and the fact that Shara was around 37 during the conquest, it's possible that Shara had not had Ronald till her late 20s, probably not even until her early 30s. And that's a pretty late age for West by West Rusty standards to have the to have her eldest child. So yeah, this is why we theorize maybe there were other kids before, or maybe this was a second marriage for both of them. Who knows? We also wonder how strong her regency position was. Was she constantly battling people trying to marry her, like like Lysa Aaron was? Like Lysa Aaron had a lot of suitors for her hand because whoever marries her gets to rule the veil kind of as co-region and be at the Erie and all that. And 
all sorts of maneuvers they can make from that position. And was she having to fight to protect her son's position? Because there was, we did see there's uprisings not long after coming along later, 30 years down the road. That's another another angle maybe that this plan seems kind of half-baked. We spent a lot of time talking about like, why it might actually been a good plan, but it still might have seemed like a bad plan to a lot of people or some of our angles might not have been true or in her mind. It yeah. might have just been a bad plan. But another reason she might have had this plan, even if it wasn't realistic, was like you're saying, just to fight off suitors. She might be, she might need a legitimate reason to give to people why she's not marrying them or someone. It's like, oh, I'm angling to marry Aegon. So I can't marry you. I would, but I'm trying to marry Aegon. That's better for my family. I can see that. Yeah. Being a motivation she would have. That so makes something sense. to say to people to justify not marrying them. And we have sort of have examples like that. I mean, like Tywin was was holding Cersei back to try to marry Rhaegar. He refused a lot of other offers for that reason. But yeah, there's certainly that's a thing. Going back a little farther in history here, Halleck Hor, father of Heron the Black, was had uh, one of the reasons I called him less capable, but just as aggressive as Harwin Hardhand, who was Heron the Black's grandfather was he tried three times. He sent three armies up against the Bloody Gate. And if y'all remember your lessons about the Bloody Gate, is it's, it's, an, it's a spot where many other armies have come to die. <laughs> That's why it's called the Bloody Gate. And in fact, Halakor is one of the reasons it has that reputation. He just didn't talk about not learning. This place is impregnable, but he just kept throwing manpower at it, which is again an example of the style of leadership you see from these Ironborn rulers. They picked up how to manage money and administrative stuff that the older school Ironborn were never good at, but they still ruled through brutality and with a very, with a disregard for life that even people like Tywin wouldn't throw lives away like this necessarily. And Tywin was plenty willing to throw lives away. But Tywin wouldn't just throw men at an unbeatable obstacle. He would have the sense to realize this is not going to work. And he probably wouldn't. He may not have even tried in the first place. And he's willing to waste men. We saw that. Like when he was trying to cross the Red Fork and Edmure, Rob wanted Edmure not to do this, but Edmure set up this great line of defense to stop him from crossing. And Tywin, so what Tywin did was he sent men all over the place to try to find a weak spot until he found one. A lot of men died doing that, but it wasn't, it wasn't fruitless. It wasn't pointless. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't impossible. It might not have been worth it, but it was something that could happen with the sacrifice. It would away. definitely cost lives, but it wasn't like running into a wall. It wasn't like the, yeah. the wildlings attacking the wall in season four, where it's like, this is, a ho- like, this is hopeless. <laughs> Even without Stannis, you know, coming in. <laughs> so she knew where one of the threats was. So she's clearly like, okay, so even though these Ironborn are making foolish attacks, they're trying. And that's dangerous. And they may find another way to do it. And after Harrenhal's established, they're you got a different king. They get, they may, their approach may change. They may try different tactics. They may not do this stupid method of the frontal assault on an impregnable castle. They may try finding ways through the mountains or shipping men around the Vale and entering through the fingers or things like that, which might actually work. Shara would be thinking about that as like, this is the next five to 10 year outlook. Like, is when Heron Hall's finished, what kind of moves is he going to be making? This is exactly the kind of moves I think she would be thinking of. And if she's not thinking of them, maybe she should have been. <laughs> maybe one of her advisors would have been thinking of that. As Nina puts it, Heron's architectural distraction wouldn't last forever. <laughs> and when it ended, the veil might be next on the chopping block, especially given that 
a lot of people perceive a kingdom ruled by a woman slash boy king as ripe. They would be wrong in this case because she's no pushover. But, right, that doesn't, <laughs> just because we know that doesn't mean they know that. And, and even if they can't defeat her, it doesn't mean that her people won't be very hurt by the attempt. Right. Unless it's like Halakor again, smashing their armies fruitlessly against the bloody gate that just gives her an easy win. Then, yeah, it's it's going to take a lot of effort and tough tough decisions and loss of life and things like that. So basically, what is that? So decoding her offer. Yeah, it's like, it's, it tells her that she's a player. It tells us she's a player, right? She's playing the Game of Thrones. And also, but she was willing to fight though. Because as soon as, as we'll see later when Aegon says no, she's like, all right then. She's, she doesn't cower. She doesn't beg. She doesn't try. She just, she just switches to defend. She's like, all right, gear up. Start arming the men. Increase the garrisons. Start making spears and swords, new arrows and all that. Then, of course, none of that mattered because dragons just flew over that. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, So this is, but it's a pattern. The Aaron's her plan of trying to get a marriage into the Targaryen family is sort of a Aaron recurring feature. A century later, Viserys Targaryen, the Viserys Targaryen, soon to be played by Patty Constantine, marries Emma Aaron, that's Rhaenyra's mother, and Emma herself, one-fourth Targaryen, because she is the granddaughter of Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Her mother was Daella Targaryen, and her father, uh, Dale's husband, was Roderick Aaron. Yes, her name was Aima Targaryen, as in A-E, a very yeah. Targaryen <laughs> name, to be clear. Yeah, not Emma, Aima. Yeah. <laughs> and there were all, another figure worth mentioning is Marla Sunderland. Marla Sunderland is the lady of the sisters, of the three sisters, who we just spoke about with regards to the Worthless War. She was probably in charge at this point when the conquest happens, the veil loses control of the sisters again. They throw off the yoke of the veil and declare themselves independent and put Marla Sunderland up as their new queen. And uh, then that gets reversed really quickly <laughs> when they realize this was a terrible idea. The, the Targaryens come for them and overthrow her themselves before they even get there. Tells us that maybe this woman was not very forward thinking or her supporters weren't very forward thinking. But this is also a recurring feature because the Sunderlands also will join the Blackfire Rebellion. And that doesn't go well for them either. So uh, it's kind of a recurring feature just as much as the Aaron's trying to marry the Targaryens is a recurring thing. So are the Sunderlands trying to become independent. The three sisters trying to break apart and become a pirate kingdom all again <laughs> or whatever they had in mind. The West. There's, a lot, there's less information on the West, but we've got a few things. The last known ruler, Lauren I, Lannister, a.k.a. Lauren the Last, seems to have been on the younger end, didn't have a son until after the conquest. And he had multiple sons, so he was probably a younger king at this point. He, his nickname, like I said, Lauren the Last, because he was the last king of the Rock. He might have been the son of Tommen II, the Tommen who went to Valyria to try to loot the ruins after the doom, this foolish man who took their Valyrian steel sword with him on this expedition. Why did you take the Valyrian steel sword with you <laughs> on this expedition? Who were you going to like fight with it? You're going to a 
volcanic ruin. Like, who? what enemies are you going to fight with your fancy sword that really shouldn't have... Yeah, this was foolish. But... I got to say, I can't help but think that's results-oriented. I, I yeah, think that if he... Don't I, I don't know, but I but I think that it, I, it seems reasonable to me if you're going on an adventure, you want to bring your best weapon. I don't know. Maybe the, maybe he shouldn't have gone on this adventure. Maybe this weapon yeah. is more important to the family than his success in the adventure. That I, might be I, the better I, argument. I don't think the adventure man. was the problem in the first place, not the taking your sword with you. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, <laughs> either way. Like if he had come back with two more Valyrian swords <laughs> that he won by defeating someone with his Valyrian sword, <laughs> then we would say, oh, what a great idea that was. Good thing he took his sword. But, but the idea of finding that on, on a, a doomed peninsula, yeah, maybe that's a little thin. Yeah. But you're right. I, I see your point, though. I see your point. Nina writes, I wonder how the fateful voyage of Tommen II affected Lauren on a personal as well as political level. Tommen's failure was spectacular. The loss not only of the king, but this fleet and the sword. <laughs> Did the other powers of Westeros mock the Lannisters for losing all this, for this failure? Because they don't know the circumstances. They don't know, like, maybe, like, like you said, maybe it's results-oriented, but that's still how they would probably look at it as looking at the result. <laughs> Wrong or right, that's probably what they would do. They're certainly taking advantage to, to take the Lannisters down a peg. That, that seems pretty straightforward. So they were like, you idiots, you decadent fools, is the word Nina uses, decadent fools. Yeah, kind of like that. It just occurred to me, Ned took ice down to King's Landing, didn't he? And that wasn't even some adventure where you expected to go into yeah, combat. You're totally right. Just, yeah. Yeah. That was a good point. That was a good point. Okay. I didn't think of that. Good example. A recent pattern with the Lannisters in this era. What I've noted that it's perhaps the biggest fail in a series of recent fails by recent Lannister kings. They had gone through a, a phase of marked by extravagance and poor decisions, which I think is a function of the Lannisters had sort of quote unquote learned that they could make a lot of mistakes without suffering many repercussions given how entrenched their power was, given how hard it is to overthrow them, given how much just wealth they can just literally pull out of the ground, how much wealth they had built up over prior generations and centuries. They could mess up pretty bad and still, at the end of the day, be king. The connections they had based on that wealth, too, were also almost as valuable as the wealth. Yeah, you know, the trade deals. Like the the and power of Lannisport, the commerce that's moving through there. And base, the, yeah. Theater, yeah. You're right. There's just so much entrenched power they have. So, yeah, you can, you can make a lot of mistakes in that position. And since your defensive position is also so strong, you, know, and you're, you're, you can fail and fail and fail and hold on to power. It's un, an unusual scenario, but you can see why that's the case, given the, given the way things work. So... Yeah, like the idea of a world without Lannisters ruling and casually rock seemed foreign, especially in the West, but probably seemed pretty weird to, to anyone in Westeros. Like, no one's ever heard of that. Like, the Cashleys ruled so long ago that it's, it's nowhere near historical memory. Yeah, so we didn't have, like, a lot of forward thinkers. There wasn't, like, a Lannister king in, in recent memory at this point that had made a lot of smart moves, at least not that we saw. Just a lot of these fails. It's not that they didn't have wars. But they were wars of expansion or defense against such. And it was like traditional back and forth fights with their neighbors. For example, we get a general idea from this quote from the World of Ice and Fire. By the way, I just want to clarify you uh, those types of conflicts you're describing as opposed to conquests. Right. They're not the trying to, Border yeah. skirmishes were super common when these entrenched powers that they're not, you're not going to overtake Casterly Rock, you're not going to overtake Highgarden, but you might overtake a castle on the border. And, and, and all of a sudden that goes from, that passes from the West to the Reach or back and forth. There's certain border spots that must have traded hands just countless times over the years. 
But as opposed to like the full blown conquest of the uh, Riverlands by the storm, the horrors who took right, yeah, yeah exactly. like that's a little, that's a lot rarer that kind of scenario. But like the the Reach never right. fully conquered the West, and the West never fully conquered the Reach. Neither of those like ever happened in thousands of years. Okay, so the quote: "The boundaries of the Westerlands today follow those of the Kingdom of the Rock as it was before the Field of Fire, when King Lauren Lannister, Lauren the Last, knelt as a king and rose as a lord." But in bygone days, the boundaries were more fluid, particularly to the south, where the Lannisters oft contended against the gardeners in a reach, and to the east, where they warred against the many kings of the Trident. Right on. Yes. So, th- that said, there's reason to believe this particular time was one of relative peace between those, those powers, because they would ally to fight Aegon. So if they really hated each other, they probably wouldn't do that. They might still do it because of the expediency of it. but given that no one was really willing to ally with Argilac or Princess Maria or even Char- like mostly the Targaryens were able to pick off these kingdoms one by one. So the only, like one of the only alliances or the only alliance really was, was this West and Reach coalition. May have been warring with Heron here and there. He may have been picking at their borders. We know for sure he was raiding to steal captives to put to work in the mines and quarries to build the castle. He was probably going outside his territory for some of that. Uh, Nina agrees that the gardeners and Lannisters were probably on decent terms. And of course, the weakness of the Durandan state was a reason for the Reach to be looking east rather than towards the Westerlands. You're going to pick off some new territory. You're going to pick it from the, the weaker kingdom, not the stronger one. Even though Argilac was a stronger king, the Lannisters were a stronger region at this time. And of course, with the West having an unusual scenario. Most of the time, the West has been like, Ironborn is over the bay there, and they're our biggest foe because they're, they're more dangerous in a lot of ways than the Reach because the Reach is going to come over land. They, you can scout. You can usually see them coming. You're not, like, not as likely to sneak up on you. But the Ironborn, they can appear anywhere from sea. It's a lot harder to see that coming. So for one of the first times in their history, the Ironborn are not only still that threat, but they've got the whole Riverlands right above them. So it's just like, whoa, there's, there's this whole broad, they're almost surrounded by Ironborn for the only time in their history. And this has been going for about 80 years at this point. So that's a real new scenario for the West. Something they've never been thousands of years of their history. And this is really hasn't been seen. Uh, arguably something similar to this was seen back in the really early days when the Ironborn were arguably the biggest power in Westeros. But that is a long time in the past. That is thousands of years ago. But it's still a huge factor here. Considers like, when have that ever happened before? The Ironborn on the North and West? <laughs> like, yikes. <laughs> and then if they keep encroaching, they'll also be to the East. <laughs> so they're going to take Blackwater Bay and all of those. Wow, we might eventually be truly completely surrounded by the Ironborn. That said, though, despite that, the Westerlands was still pretty closed. I mean, they still have strong borders, strong natural borders. So they probably weren't overly threatened. They were, they needed to stay wary. But they, just for the reasons we said, it wasn't like they were in danger of being conquered. That's still the thing. They're just like, yeah, we're still Castle Rock. We still have that going for us. A little thought that popped in my head talking about that, the difference between the threat that the Reach and the Ironborn present, is it, and why the Reach and the West might still be on decent terms, even if they have some conflicts, land, towns, farms, ports, rivers, whatever that the West and the Reach might 
squabble over, each one in the end, they still want it to be productive. Mm. Does that make sense? They want the the people of the town to be loyal and to generate food and taxes and so on. Where the Ironborn, they don't care. They come, take everything and leave. They don't worry about the morale of the people to leave behind. They don't care if the homes all get burned down. They just want to get what they can right now and then they're out of there. Where whoever ends up in control, the Lannisters or the, the gardeners or whoever, when it's done, they still want that land and those people to be productive yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. So they're less likely to be as destructive or ruthless with each other or those territories or those peoples than the Ironborn would be. You're right. And that's true even with this version of the Ironborn who were a little more forward thinking about that sort of thing. They were less destructive because they did want to profit so that they could spend that money on building ships and more war. But they were still very brutal and, and exacting. Yeah, less destructive it. isn't not destructive. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They were, they, were, they were a nine instead of an 11 on the 10-point scale. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the IMDB page for This is Final Tap, the, the 1 to 10 rating, it goes to 11. Does it really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that so much. <laughs> Let's talk about the Reach. The last known ruler, Myrn the Ninth Gardener, the last Gardener King. He's going to die on the Field of Fire. Since I said earlier he had grandsons squiring for him on the battlefield of the Field of Fire, he was certainly not a young man 15 years prior to the conquest. I mean, even if you're maxing out, you have kids at 16 and then your kids have kids at 16, which in Westeros, that could happen. You're still over 30 when you have grandkids, which is God, it's weird to have 32, be 32 years old and have grandkids. What the hell? But that's probably not what happened. <laughs> probably not what happened. Especially because he also has like brothers and and other kids. But what does that say? Just as we used Shara Aaron's offer as a guideline to her personality, what does it say when you bring your whole family to battle and you're like, and he puts his heir in the vanguard. He's like, you take the position of honor here. I'm in the front. You're in the other front. We're going to go head to head with the dragon. He also tells King Lauren of the West, he's like, I brought more men than you, so I get to be in the front. Lauren's probably like, go right ahead. <laughs> He may not have been. He may have been like in the briar patch. (laughs) But still, what does that say to you? What is this? I mean, it's kind of obvious. Like arrogance is the most obvious thing I guess you could say. But does what does it say anything else beside that? Mern's like, Argo like the arrogant. Hold my beer. Yeah, talk about (laughs) arrogant. Show you who's arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) Hold my mead. Yeah, he's got to be naive also, not just arrogant. Yeah, this guy may. This guy. He was Mern the modest. Mern. (laughs) <laughs> maybe he hadn't fought in, in battles. Maybe, like as we said, maybe this was this was maybe a time of more relative peace because they were the the, we, the Reach hadn't fought the West as much. Argilac had killed one of Mern's ancestors in battle. Maybe they weren't so eager to fight him again. Yeah, maybe maybe Mern just wasn't experienced. Maybe Mern didn't have a lot of battle experience, and so he was just more leading. He was like a Emery Florent, the guy who led Stannis's navy at the Blackwater, where he just like charged in. He's like ah. Who cares? Just sail right in. We've got overwhelming strength. There can't be any traps. What are we? We're not worried. You know, that kind of thing. Same result, too. Get burned and got incinerated. <laughs> there could be some... We're looking at this super negatively, but maybe maybe it's not. Like, maybe he was just really brave. Maybe he's really confident in his soldiers and their training and their resources. He could be brave and stupid, yeah. And, could be both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, maybe there's a certain amount of honor involved. Like, he doesn't just consider the idea... Okay, I'm partly thinking about how like a lot of battles used to go. I'm going to say, I'm less sure about Asian history, but like in European and American centric battles, 
there were like uh, organized events, not always, but but that was sort of an exception in the American Revolution, this sort of guerrilla warfare that we were using that we would like hide behind trees and run and come ambush and stuff like that. Usually they would just say, all right, nine o'clock in the field, I'll meet you there. And they would like line <laughs> yeah. up in their weapons and straighten up their uniform and get in a row like, okay, begin the fight. Oddly and people organized. would come and watch. There would be like an audience. Families would like sit on the sidelines and observe the battle. This, I can imagine on some level that's what he was expecting. He was thinking it was going to be like a tournament. And his knights would go and joust with their knights and we'll show them who the better knights that are. That is kind of You didn't understand that a dragon was going to fly yeah. across and burn them. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like comparing it to a tournament because that is like the reach is the seat of tournaments and chivalry. So they could, he could kind of treat it like, you'd see like some of his lesser lords are like, he's treating this like a tournament. <laughs> this is serious, yeah. man. Like you can also see, I can kind of get out like what he's thinking. Like a lot of times what we see is these, really high-level people or people who get, a, who get law, who lose sight of the danger and the difficulty and focus on the end result and like how great it's going to be to win. He's thinking how yeah. great it's going to be for us to beat this guy that just beat Heron the Black. We beat the guy that beat Heron the Black. How awesome was that going to look for us? We're going to look so great. We're going to be the talk and- of the continent. The legacy of his heir that was in the vanguard. Yeah, you know? he's thinking like, about his whole family. He's like thinking of sharing it a little bit. Maybe that was, maybe, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of, yeah, he, maybe he's, he's arrogant, but he's also wants his whole family to get the glory and be like, I don't want any of them to be left out. Like the one kid that was left at home, like I wasn't included in this monumental milestone defining event of our generation that got you all killed. <laughs> yeah. Like arrogance is a lot worse when it's not backed up. Does that make sense? Like it, it yeah. and again, he might have also been irresponsible, naive, or other stuff, but he may have genuinely had well-trained soldiers and made a point of like to being a good leader and training his family and treating his people well. And now's the time to prove that my leadership and, and my people are gonna be the victors. But it, it might have been as much from confidence and loyalty and and it, it might not have been purely, it easily could have been just purely negative, irresponsible. But I, I'm just trying to allow for, because when it seems so crazy, I wonder if there's more to it than that. You know? Yeah. Mm. There was also the Order of the Green Hand existed in this era. Of course, it was nearly wiped out also at the Field of Fire, except for the Manderleys. They're the only ones who still claim membership to that order that we hear of. And that would have been a big deal around this time. Maybe the Order of the Green Hand impacted Mern's plans. Maybe they're agency was important. Like they, they decided that this is a moment for the Order of the Green Hand to their ancient beliefs symbolically standing up against this Valyrian power. Maybe that was important to them to sh- for a symbolic victory. They needed to show that strength. Something like that could have been in mind. Another great power in the Reach is the High Towers. They did not participate in the Field of Fire. They stayed out. So that means this probably implies that this Manfred Hightower, who was old-ish at the time of the Field of Fire, was probably the Lord of the High Tower at this time, 10 to 15 years before, 5 to 15 years before. He was probably one of these guys that maybe saw which way the wind was blowing. Maybe he realized Mern was a dummy. <laughs> maybe he realized Aegon was not. Maybe he just thought the whole thing was better to just let itself play out, not get involved. At the same token, in the same city, the High Septon, the Citadel, and the High Tower. And the, the seat of the faith is right there. The high septum that would eventually crown Aegon was probably the high septum of this era. 
Maybe it was the prior one. Who knows? They don't take last, they don't keep last names. So it's particularly hard to keep track of them. But one of the high septons not long after this was a high tower. <laughs> so there's this strong chance of the policy, the nobles and the, and the church working together in concert to try to decide the best way to handle this new world order. And as we know, what will happen is when Aegon arrives at Old Town, he'll find the gates open and the city just like, hey, welcome, new king. Here's your table. We've got a table ready for you. Here's your waiter. I'll be taking care of you tonight. We're happy to have you here at a cafe, Old Town. We've got your crown ready too. Uh, the High Septon's uh, cleaning it off for you. We'll put it on whenever you're ready. <laughs> so they were like, they, they played it like, yeah. Of course, by that time, Aegon had like won every battle. So they're like, yeah, we're really not, we're really not going to go up against that. So it was also just like, of course, you're going to surrender <laughs> at this point. But still, it just goes to show we have a, a kind of a, a wise statesman, maybe a little like Torrin Stark this Manfred Hightower, who was like, we're not fighting that. We'll do anything we can to not fight that. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll pretend we're considering it. But in the back of his head, he's like, I'm only pretending to look like this is an option. We're never fighting them. <laughs> unless, they, unless they give us no choice and just like a flat out attack us. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I wonder if Mern could also have had a religious influence. Like if he was very uh, devout in his faith of the seven mm. and just believed that the gods would lead him to victory. That's a great that's point. A, often a factor. You're right. You're absolutely right. That is something that I, I should have thought of and, and is a, not an unlikely possibility. It may, maybe it's part of the equation. Yeah. The, his belief that the dragon lords, they, the faith would, would lend strength to his arms that these dragon lords are... Because, yeah, because the, the faith would begin preaching pretty hardcore against them after this and it didn't just come from nowhere the, the disparity in beliefs and things that they consider abomination are pretty straightforward incest dragons worshiping other gods all this stuff yeah so let's, let's briefly mention the Tyrells right the Tyrells are important because they become the stewards of Highgarden but at this era that's what they are they're stewards only not high lords yet but they're going to glom onto Aegon pretty quickly and be like yep we're on your team and that's going to result in rewards and difficult tasks given to them. Remember that Aegon went hawking on the arbor um, early in his life or maybe shortly after he became Lord. We're not clear when that happened, but before the conquest. So he seems to have, we mentioned earlier that he seems to have befriended the Lord of the Arbor. That may have come into play when he attacked the Reach. Normally the Arbor would be like, okay, I got to send my troops to my to the Overlord, and send some troops to help fight Aegon. But this guy might have been like, you know what? I'm not going to send any troops. And being on an island, you can maybe get away with that. It's not like the Reach can just send a bunch of ships to attack. They are the ships that the west coast of the Reach often relies on. It's the Arbor Fleet that's quite often is, the, is that power. So they would be able to sit back and, and expect to not have a lot of pushback. Talk about a defensible position. No one wants to wreck the arbor. That's where all the wine comes from. And the high lords aren't going to destroy that. No, <laughs> they've got a natural, it's like plot armor. <laughs> no one wants to destroy that. I, I can imagine this is a detail that just doesn't exist, but they might have legitimately not been able to for some reason if there was like storms and their ships have been wrecked or washed out. Or be they a just good excuse to say, yeah, oh, yeah. storms, yeah. man. Sorry, right. we would have come, but our <laughs> ships were disabled. Yeah, yeah. And then they don't have to. Then the gardeners were wiped out. So there's like, well, we don't even have to make excuses. <laughs> there's no one to make excuses to. Like, hey, we weren't in the battle. We're, yeah, we didn't fight against you. 
Should we be rewarded for that? I think so. <laughs> Nina writes that, yeah, the, the waning power of House Durandon had meant waxing power for House Gardner. Durandons were distracted by the Ironborn. The Riverlands were occupied by the Ironborn. The Vale was, was clearly anxious about that with them, all those attacks on the Bloody Gate. So that kind of opened up a scenario where the, where the Reach could attack the Stormlands and pick little pieces off without worrying about the other kingdoms interfering with those gains, which is usually a problem, right? The great game being as it is, none of the other kingdoms want any kingdom to gain too much power. So this is an opportunity for the Reach to gain some strength without ticking anybody else off, or at least not them being able to do much about it. Of course, with Dorne to the south as well, that's a thing. But Dorne is never an issue in terms of a threat as a conqueror. Dorne's always a threat to come and raid and steal and destroy and pillage. But Dorne has never emerged from those mountains with conquest on their mind. That's, they just don't have the manpower or cultural connection for that. The people wouldn't be, accept that rule probably. So it allows them to defend that border less because they're not worried about massive armies. They're worried about raiding parties. But even the raiding parties that might come from Dorne, they're not like a concerted effort of Dorne. They're just people on the borders where like the people of the Iron Islands get together, build yeah. ships, but it's like their culture's purpose. Whereas Dorne is more split culturally yeah. in the first place. There's some yeah. state-sanctioned raiding probably, but it would be on the down low. Wouldn't, they wouldn't be like, we're flying the flag of Sunspear as we raid. They might actually be funded by Sunspear where they're not going to make it known. But they're not raising armies in Sunspear, marching yeah. up to the passes to go attack the Reach. Yeah, totally right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the Faith Militant. Yeah, so where was the Faith Militant this time? What were they doing? Well, good chance they were just penned up in, in Old Town. When exactly would they have gotten involved? You might be like, why didn't they get involved? But when would they have? I mean, during the conquest, like they're not going to stand up for hair in the black, <laughs> right? And they may not, who they, maybe they'd take the side of the Storm King over the Targaryens, but they wouldn't, are they just going to send an army to him? I mean, eh, that's not, that doesn't necessarily make sense either. So while they might be, while there are, ideologically opposed to Valyrian beliefs. And they would, that problem would arise later, especially with Magor. At this point, they're not friendly with a lot of the other powers that are being attacked. Not entirely, anyway. So it's, it's, when you think about when would they have gotten involved, well, I don't know. So that, that is a good question. Without being able to answer that question, it, we were, the answer is, well, they were, their commander may not have thought it was time to get involved. Maybe they were organizing. Maybe. There's a lot of possibilities. Maybe they even did get involved in ways that aren't as clear. Like maybe okay. some of the gardener's forces came from the faith. Yeah, you know? okay, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe they were a little bit on the field of fire. Maybe they're represented there, and it's just not, the histories don't include that. But yeah, it's entirely possible. Soldiers that the faith would have sent were already called to other banners. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And yeah. All right, our last region for the day is Dorne, the important Dorne. Of course, Dorne wasn't taken in the conquest. It's still important to take note of because they tried to conquer them and because Dorne is fun and interesting. Again, Princess Maria Martell, the yellow toad, she was about age 80 during the conquest. So she would have been 75, 65, five to 15 years before. Nina says, remember that the Martells have, quote, only been in power for about 700 years at this point, which is a long time for a real world perspective, but 
Comparing it to like the Starks, Lannisters, Durandons, and Gardeners, or even certain Ironborn powers, that's nothing. I mean, they, they've been ruling for thousands of years. Even the Aarons had been in power for over a thousand years at this point. Martells are definitely the newcomers on the block in terms of a great house. They were also the first power to have united Dorne under a single banner. Because Dorne was normally more of a, like a, its own miniature microcosm of the Hundred Kingdoms where they were not united. In part, Sean, because of what you said about the different ethnicity, ethnic groups that were present there and the natural barriers between a lot of the regions. The desert is a separation. The mountains are separation points. This is geographical features that separate them. It's kind of, you know, there's still people that wanted to maybe overthrow them or wouldn't, weren't happy with them, like the Ironwoods, who have always been the greatest rivals to the Martells. Here's a quote from the World of Us and Fire, a quick one about Maria. Maria Martell was 80 years of age, the maesters tell us, and had ruled the Dornishmen for 60 of those years. We have few examples, if any, of someone being in charge for that long, of any kingdom. I'm like, off the top of my head, Jaehaerys was king for about that long. But not even, but not that long. No, he, he lived about that long. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. He lived for like 65 years, I think. And he, no, he lived longer than that. But he, he became king early. He became king at like 15. And Maria, I guess she became queen or our princess around age 20. But that's just a massive length of, to rule. You got to learn a few things there. You can't hold on to power that long without learning a few tricks. And, and there's other reasons to think she was pretty clever, very brave, certainly not, a, not bowed, maybe a little bent because of her age, but not broken. <laughs> not fully bent, though, that's for sure. So she did, and she also won't die till about age 93. So she's also going to live quite a bit longer. She had probably been ruling Dorne since most of the other current rulers had even been born. <laughs> so really long. So she had seen a lot of them come and go. Think about that. When I, what I mentioned at the beginning was that her mother and father were alive during the doom. So she's seen this whole thing come full circle. She sees the Targaryens move to Dragonstone. See, all this time passed, all these generations of Targaryens come, and then now they're trying to conquer Westeros. <laughs> she saw, she's, she's her, her lifespan is placed right in the middle of that, in a positioned well to like see it and witness it throughout her life. It's a very interesting perspective. That'd be a good spinoff. That'd be a good... Yes. <laughs> yeah, not only an interesting person, but a very interesting time for her to have lived through. So just, just as an observer and as a person... Yeah, and in a new Dorne is just so interesting anyway. I mean, yeah, you know, with the the Roynish culture being in there and making it kind of a world apart with all their technological advantages. And Nina writes, just as the gardeners took advantage of the declining power of the Stormlands, so the Dornish did the same. But while the gardeners seemed to have held back after Garst Seven's defeat and death at Summerfield, I didn't mention that by the way. Garst Seven's defeat at Summerfield—that's Argilac. Argilac beat Garst Seven's Battle of Summerfield. That was. That was Myrne's ancestor, Garce. So continuing Nina's quote, even as the conquest was beginning, Maria Martell offered to join the Targaryens in alliance against King Argilac. Given the long history of bloodshed and violence on both sides of the Dornish marches, it's probably not surprising that the Martells would be looking to take advantage of a current state of weakness within the Durandan kingdom. Likewise, because the Martells only share a border with the Reach and Stormlands, they may have figured that the whores were not a threat to them. Black Herons doesn't share a border. They're super far away. So he's not really worried about empowering the horrors by taking down the Durandans, which other global powers would, would have wanted to maybe maintain that parity. But Dorne wouldn't have been concerned with that parity. They would be happy to be rid of their 
thousand plus, like multi-thousand year enemy of the Stormlanders. Her son, Prince Nymor, which is awfully similar to Prince Namor <laughs> of uh, the Submariner, Submariner from Marvel Comics fame. He was 33 years younger than her. So maybe not her firstborn, but he would become her heir. And then his heir is Princess Daria, daughter of her, his daughter. Given how old she was, all the, she, these two were probably both alive too. Daria and Nymor were probably both alive at five to 15 years before the conquest. And how alive, but how old do you think, not, do you think Daria would have been aware of the events? That I'm not so sure about. Nymar was 33 years younger than her. So he would have been already like 37. So Daria could have been a teenager by then. So decent chance she could have been aware of it. And if not, she would have been entering the age where she could have. And they would have been raising her to rule. This is Dorn. So there wouldn't have been like some boy could come along and take jump ahead of you in the succession. That's Dorn, Princess Daria, she's locked in. So that's good. So they would have raised her to rule from the get-go. And that's... Thus, make her learn about politics and these world-shaping events. So, yeah, I would think she's pretty aware of it. Another character, just to be aware of, he's not a a major name, but Joffrey Dane, Sir Joffrey Dane, will lead an army to the gates of Old Town in 10 AC and just just, just ravage the territory. He couldn't get inside. It was too much to break down the walls or to get in. But he just laid waste to the territory. So since he's leading an army 10 years after the conquest, I mean, if he's 20 at that point, that means he's born 10 years before the conquest. He's probably older than that. He's leading an army. And we obviously do see people that young leading armies, but usually it's the senior commanders, the people who've got experience doing that sort of thing, especially something important as attacking a major target like Old Town. It'll send a teenager for that, I don't think. <laughs> Not very often anyway. Another important figure is the Widow Lover, the Lord of Will who is going to infamously inflict brutalities on the Targaryens. Some would say deserved because they were invading his homeland. And this guy will be coming back to him when we cover the conquest. But I wanted to make sure his name got thrown out because he was certainly alive at this point. Probably Lord by this time. Maybe his father was still in charge or his uncle or whoever, his older brother. You never know the succession in cases like this. We just throw out all the quick possibilities. On the subject of names, I wanted to point out with Amaria's name, I think it can sometimes get ignored just because we're saying her name out loud. But that's a Nymeria. It's Miria. Oh, it's Miria? Oh, it's, of it's course. Nymeria, Nymeria but obviously. It's Nymeria, like Nymore, Nymeria, yeah. Miria. Yeah. Like, I just wanted to point that out because when we say it, Maria, I don't think that comes across. You're right. And in yeah. fact, it was originally transcribed by like Adam Whitehead when George originally like read from the world of ice and fire and stuff like that. And he said, when he said it, people transcribed it as Maria, like M-A-R-I-Y-A. So clearly, however George said it, it was not like, it wasn't said in a way that, so anyways, it's just, her name has been spelled different ways because we knew her about her before it was published. Then, of course, when you have Daria, that's another another spin on Nymeria and Maria. It's just that same. Yeah. The original Nymeria had a younger sister named Nideria. So. <laughs> Nideria. <laughs> just kidding. Summarizing the realm as a whole. If we could do a quick, like, two minutes on all the kingdoms together and what the outlook was at this point of view. 
Not much unity. You can see why it was somewhat ripe for conquest, even though that was kind of a normal state of affairs. They're always just make sure no one gets too powerful and keep your entrenched power in place so that no matter what happens, it's hard to push you out of power. True for the Lannisters, true for the Gardener, true for the Storm Kings, true all around for all these great powers. The, that point was approaching with Heron. Heron the Black was tipping the scales, being like, we might have to gang up on this guy. If we're looking at what-if scenarios, we briefly touched on that earlier, that would have probably been what happened. It would have been, it would have been a, like a, a reckoning. Other kings would have been like, are we going to team up on this guy? Or is he going to pick us off one by one? Or is his kingdom going to collapse because of his harsh style of rule? I wonder if some of them were just hoping that would happen. They could just let it go. Like, ah, let him collapse on his own. We don't have to do anything about it. Or, or, but they could have been wrong. It may have still taken several more generations. Hmm, yes, world building, many possibilities. I don't know. I never thought of it from this perspective before. It, to me, in the past, always like the idea that Aegon built down Heron Hall right after they finished building it. Oh, the irony. But I started to think, wait, he didn't just happen to show up, right? When it, like, I wonder why. Why didn't he do it before it got built? You know, well, he was I, probably maybe like, the timing wasn't great, but yeah, maybe it would have been better to do it a little before. But of course, it didn't even end up mattering. Like the completion of the castle wasn't really that relevant. Like he could, because he could easily well, go over the defenses. I wonder if that's, if he specifically was waiting for it to be done oh, to make more of a statement. That's a great idea. Like, All right, we're in three weeks. They should be done. Make sure the dragons are fed. Save, get save, the troops save ready to go. Some work that's a great idea because people are like, oh, it's too much of a coincidence. Like, oh, and people, that, the history is just written that way to make it seem symbolic. But you're right. He might have been waiting because it looks, he, he not, it's like the prison thing. Like when you go to prison, you, you, you attack someone else so that you don't yeah. look weak. You know, you, but, and if the, the bigger the person you attack, the stronger you look. So, Aegon starts off by going after the biggest dog in the, in the kennel. And, and he waited till he was, looked even stronger. So it just, just shows how strong he's like, yeah, I'm going to make, they all don't, and it, especially given the confusion, the general confusion over just how powerful a dragon is at this era, like he knew, but the other, king, the yeah. other kings didn't, the other commoners didn't exactly know. He made, he made sure they knew. <laughs> and, but it's, yeah. it's, you're right. I think it, was, it wasn't clear that they understood what they were getting into because they hadn't seen dragons but in action. Waiting for Heron Hall to be done and then burning it down makes his point. I like that idea I a think, lot. Yeah, because yeah. it's the same thing. I, that's the, basically the same point I was trying to make at the Field of Fire, that he intentionally brought fewer men so people would be like, the dragons did that. It's the same thing you're saying with this, with this castle. Like, the dragons did that. Like, you don't fight back against this guy. He's got an insurmountable advantage. Not only does he have dragons, he's got one of the biggest dragons ever. <laughs> if not the biggest <laughs> dragon ever. It's possible Balerion was <laughs> the biggest dragon in thousands of years or something. I don't know. Question from Will Moss. Populations have dropped in many places and times in the past. After the Black Death, the population of England dropped massively. It took centuries to rebuild to pre-plague levels. Like, Spring Sickness is an example in world. Yeah, that's true. I don't think Sean was saying that they just, it's just a straight line up, but there's, there's always set, there's, there could be setbacks, but generally speaking, compare the world in like a hundred and thousand year blocks, it's almost always going up. Yes, but uh, oh, my, my point remains, I brought up the great spring sickness and stuff like that is why the North might have been less, more, more populous than, than they are now. And so, thanks, Will. That's true. That is true. That would have been, just to be clear, the great spring sickness was around the year 210, which, yeah, 90 years prior to the 
so, the books. But, you know, like that's just that's a generation lost or something. Like, like that know. that has a yeah. ripple effect. Yeah. yeah, like all the kids aren't having kids, aren't having kids, aren't having kids. Yeah, it takes a long time to rebuild a population. Takes generations to rebuild from that. So this is a great point. Yeah. Uh, Dornish James says, Torin could have anticipated Heron wanting to expand north or been offended by Heron burning so much weirwood. Yeah. As another person, we, we talked about this, maybe the supernatural elements being upset with the weirwood burning. But yeah, the northerners would have been probably too. That's a good point. I just, I was only thinking of the supernatural. But yeah, like a lot of Starks would be like, hey, don't do that. So yeah, that's a great, great and so, yeah. to consider. So yeah, then Torin was just prepared when Aegon landed. Yeah, he's like, this guy's just burning down where it was. We're getting, we're going to get our armies ready to deal with this guy. This and then he's to... like, oh, wait, there's another more important guy to deal yeah. with. They can pretend yeah. they were prepared for the dragons. They're actually, they're preparing for either one, whatever. Either way, they're getting their army ready. <laughs> it's not like they have fireproof suits to wear in either case. It's the same preparation. No <laughs> matter some, I don't know, Stannis or the realm's preparation for the others might also be good preparation for Euron. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely preparing for war. Or them, and conversely, there's also Stannis or whatever, whatever's uh, preparation to fight the Lannisters prepared him to go up north and fight the others. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Same yeah. kind of idea. That is true. If Stannis hadn't had forces rallied and equipped and such to to war for the throne, then he wouldn't have had them ready to war against the others mm-hmm. either. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Trivia question: Who died in the infamous bed of scorpions? As I said, we heard his house in Song of Ice and Fire and had his full name clarified in The World of Ice and Fire. The name is Lionel Tyrell. Can anyone tell me who plays Lionel Tyrell on Michael Clarfeld's Dorn map? It's a someone in the fandom that we all know. <laughs> Someone we've had on our episodes, on well, our streams, plays. I feel like Lionel. I should know. Yeah, Sean should yeah. know. Uh, if anyone guesses, we'll see if anyone says it, but I'll, I'll say it in a minute otherwise. While you're pondering, I'll throw out a little tidbit. Nina mentioned that we might actually get to see Lionel Tyrell, this character, pre Scorpions, in young toddler or baby form in House of the Dragon, because that's when that's, that's his era. He would have been born in the House of the Dragon era. The actual incident would have been in the year, I think, 157 or 158. Would have been, or maybe, yeah, in that region. The Conquest of Dorne was like 157, 158, and then it was fully free again by 161. So that's your time frame on that. You ready for your answer? Yeah, what's the answer to your question, Ashea? Jeff Hartline, Brendan Beefish plays Lionel Tyrell. That's right. (laughs) He's lying there shirtless, naked or whatever, covered in scorpions and dead. So if you ever wanted to see him dead. isn't (laughs) Isn't there a woman in that? In that shot, there well. is a woman, but it's not a woman we know. Oh, it's just a random woman. Okay, yeah, it's not, it's it's not a, a model, fandom model. No, it's not a fandom model. It's a nude woman. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I guess he couldn't get someone display, to. <laughs> so. I mean, he did, but then he didn't use it anyways. There was like Jasmine was gonna was going to be it, but he decided to go a different direction and he changed okay. Jasmine to Nymeria. Oh, well, um, she came so, out. She came yeah, out. She fine came out ahead scene. there. Uh, <laughs> From random sex worker to Nymeria. Hmm, yeah, all right, that's cool. Other episodes we mentioned in this episode, I recommend our Blarian episode. It fills in a little more detail pre-Doom and about some of the other Targaryen figures while also going through the rest of Blarian's life and times. The Lost Valyrian Steel episode with Tommy Pappas has some tidbits that are relevant to this one, especially Tommen the Second Lannister, as well as some other stuff about just the Targaryens and Valyrian Steel in general. Gagasos, we mentioned that really early on, the 10th Free City, the one that was wiped out by the Red Death. That is a patrons-only episode, bonus episode. 
And that one deals delves deep into another era of time with blood magic and sorcery and weird creature experiments and very role-playing-ish setting. That's a fun episode. So check that out if you're so inclined. Our patron voters chose the Red Kings for our next topic. The Red Kings, that's the kings of the Dreadfort. Oh, we've covered other areas of the North. The Barrow Kings, the Starks of Winterfell, obviously, the Wall, the other related topics. So we'll cover the eastern side of the North. Well, we've covered the Manderleys too. So this is a probably the biggest one that we have yet to cover in the North. Not the last one, but the biggest remaining probably. Or at least one of. It beat Dragonstone, the topic Dragonstone, by one vote. <laughs> so that was a close call. The Free City of Lys, Lys, however you say it, and House Tarly were the other things that were voted on. So those did not win. Thanks again to Stephen Atwell. His Race of the Iron Throne blog was very helpful to some of the points today. We'll hopefully have him back on again sometime. Thanks to anyone who came live and hung out with us today for a nice lengthy episode, two weeks in a row of pretty long episodes. Thanks as well to Nina for her invaluable assistance. A lot of great takes again today. Check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. If you are a patron of History of Westeros, or one of our, or a subscriber on Anchor Spotify, or someone who's donated before in the past. We very much appreciate that. You, of course, are eligible to vote in our polls if you're on Patreon and get all our bonus episodes if you're on any of those platforms. Good time to join right before House of the Dragon gets fired up. Things are heating up. Joey, Jesse, and Kevin, and Michael, thank you guys for your music and artwork. So awesome to have. It really makes things look better. Makes us all look fancier and cooler. And thanks, of course, as well to our mods on Facebook and Discord. Those are our main spots these days. We're all keeping things smooth and clean over there. Great discussions, great times. And that's about to heat up as well, even more because of the new content coming. Our good friends over at Here Be Dragons are talking about Stranger Things Volume 2 Part 2, working their way through the Stranger Things catalog, it would seem. And of course, here's a reminder that Ashea and I will be at San Diego Comic Con in the, near the end of July. If you're going to be there, let us know. And we'll be coming back with some reports. Yeah, let us know whether you're going to be at San Diego Comic Con or, or whether you just live in the San Diego area because there will be an off-site activation for House of the Dragon, the Dragon's Den. So even if you don't have a badge for San Diego Comic Con, you should, and you live in the area, you should absolutely come out and go to the Dragon's Den. We'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out today. We'll be back next week with the Red Kings. And until then, you know what to do. Valar Arias. <laughs>